Welcome, everybody, to Crystal Kyle and Friends. Today, we're going to be talking to Zach and Gavin of the Vanguard. And when I say we are going to be talking to them, I mean me, because Crystal <laughs> is uh, attending to some family stuff. So it's just it's just me for the main event. I know you'll hold it down, babe. Yes, I will do my my best to do exactly that. Should be fun. Uh, I like talking to those guys. Should be interesting. All right. So before we get into that, so there's a couple things we wanted to discuss with you guys. First of all, Charles Barkley is known as uh, one of the guys on TV who keeps it the most real. I would argue that it's between him and Stephen mm -hmm. A. Smith, who, you know, speaks their mind most clearly with zero filters. Yes. Um, and agree or disagree with the guys. I think that's you know, an endearing, authentic quality about them, about mm -hmm. Charles Barkley. about, mm -hmm. And you could even argue, you know, Shaq and, and Kenny and EJ who are on uh, NBA on TNT with Charles Barkley, that they also fall into that category. They mm -hmm. just have wonderful chemistry. But anyway, so Charles Barkley uh, was at some event and he really let it all hang out. So I want to give you a, a quote of what he said here and then we'll get your reaction to it. So this is from Ben Collins, who's a senior reporter of NBC News. He tweets this out. Um, I think the original reporting was actually from the New York Post. But anyway, so Charles Barkley said at some, you know, event, private event, hey, let me tell you something. All you rednecks or assholes who don't want to drink Bud Light, fuck y'all. Hey, y'all can't cancel me. Hey, I ain't worried about getting canceled because let me tell you something. If y'all fire me and give me all that money, I'm going to be playing golf every fucking day. <laughs> so listen, as I said last night, if you're gay, God bless you. If you're trans, God bless you. And if you have a problem with them, Fuck you. Uh, <laughs> that's so beautiful. I so, love it. So this is like, this is like, to me, when I read this and when I hear this, it's a good example of like the first person I've seen aggressively push back against the cancel culture brigade on the right. Mm. You know, because there's been this wave of anti-gay, anti-trans sentiment on the right led by the likes of, you know, the Ben Shapiro's and the Matt Walsh's and the Michael Knowles and many others. Yeah. And, you know, any corporation that has a, a pro-gay ad or pro-trans ad in the case of Bud Light, Dylan Mulvaney, a trans person, was on a can and there was this big hoopla about it. And people were like, you know, I'm not going to buy Bud Light anymore. And there were boycotts and some places stopped carrying it, etc. And Charles Barkley's looking at it like, what are you guys doing? Right. Why, why are you doing this? Well, and this all came in the context of he was like, I'm going to buy everybody drinks and I'm buying Bud Light because like, fuck the haters, basically. And so, um, I mean, the funny thing is, though, he's being treated as and I, I enjoy the comments. I'm glad we're featuring them because I think they're great. But also he's on the side of like 70 percent of America, at least that supports gay marriage. At That's this right. Point, yeah. Including a majority of Republicans who support gay marriage at this point. And so there's been such an overplaying of the hand from, you know, we had gay marriage, um, Supreme Court decision of Burgafell, And then there was a bit of a retreat on the right from those issues. They're like, all right, we're just not going to talk about that for a while. And then they picked up uh, the quote unquote trans ideology and we're just going to focus in on the kids. And we think this is a winning issue. Now they have so overplayed their hand that they are wildly out of step with where the American public is, certainly on gay issues, but also on trans issues. And I don't think that they really realize that meanwhile corporations are so like they have no values other than making money they're so skittish so you know they all were like backing off of their pride month displays or whatever ever over this minority conservative outcry over daring to like you know express a solidarity with their gay employees or whatever so um it's nice to see someone who's just like calling the bullshit so i have a theory i'd like to run by you yeah i call it my normie theory of american politics 
And it goes something like this. To normie Americans who don't follow this stuff very closely, whoever makes the most noise is the loudest and the most obnoxious and arrogant can fuck off. And there was a time where, you know, whatever, you go back to 2015 and there were examples of like lefties who were trying to say, you know, pull that video game off the shelves or get rid of that movie because we don't have enough representation of people of color in the movie. And so we're going to boycott this thing. And there, there was a reaction to that that was like, relax, right. calm down, you're going a little too far, this is a little silly, like you're using authoritarian tactics over something that's basically a minor issue that can be addressed in much more reasonable ways. But now the pendulum is swung so far that it's totally in the other direction, where if you have a trans person in an ad for a Bud Light or on a, their face on a Bud Light can, mm. it's like they act like it's the end of the world. Yeah. And they're the loudest. They're the most aggressive. They're the most obnoxious. They're yeah. the most sure of themselves. And so to normie Americans, they're like, who cares? Like, why? Like, of all the things that corporations do, why is this the most outrageous to you? Right. Just like they're hollow virtue signaling saying, we don't hate various minorities. And they're like, oh, you should. It's like, right. Of all the things they do, I mean, the best example, I give this example all the time, but like, um, Michael Knowles, of not Michael Knowles, excuse me, Jeremy Boring, who's the CEO of The Daily Wire, launched their own brand of chocolate mm -hmm. for The Daily Wire. Mm -hmm. And he did this because I, I, it was Nestle or Hershey's or some company was doing woke stuff. And they were like, this is unacceptable. So we're going to launch our own chocolate. But the thing that amazes me is about a year before that, there was a story and it went all the way to the Supreme Court where Nestle was accused of using literal slavery for their products. Right. And the Supreme Court basically said, hey, man. Maybe there is slavery, maybe there isn't, uh, but it's so far down the chain that I don't know what you want us to do about it, so we're going to go ahead and side with Nestle and what it is what it is type right. stuff. So the Supreme Court was like, okay, slavery's fine in certain circumstances. Nestle's like, we're going to keep using slave labor. And none of these idiots were like, well, I'm done with Nestle. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to boycott Nestle because they're using literal slavery. Right. But you have like a trans person or something or, or they a gay like, person or... Take the sexy green M&M away. Yeah, and that's the thing... <laughs> That you're all like, I'm sorry, guys, yeah. but people on the far right here, just they're dating themselves with their weird niche obsessions. It's like that DeSantis ad where it was like massively anti-gay and it had, uh, remember, it had Patrick Bateman in it, uh, Christian Bale. Right. Yeah. And, and it was like, the reason that guy is like the, that character was known for being a serial killer of homeless people. Right. And like you're running this as if, ah, based, based Chad DeSantis is just like this guy. Well, and that ad really exposed the way that their rhetoric has very quickly escalated and migrated because when DeSantis passed his like, don't say gay and anti-stop woke act and whatever, he framed it all as this has nothing to do with gay people. That's just what my detractors are saying. This is all about parental choice. And, you know, when he framed it that way, in Florida at least, it was kind of like 50-50, like he had most of the public, uh, bare majority of the public on his side on these issues. This ad pulled the headlines that were like, DeSantis passes most anti-trans bill in the history of the world. DeSantis is a bigot. DeSantis hates trans people. I mean, those weren't this, but, but it was like in that vein. Oh, it was very similar to that. It was yeah. like that. Mm -hmm. and, he, and they're like, yes, yay, that's what we want. So completely pulling off the mask of any sort of semblance of like, this is just about parental choice. But I mean, to your point on the normie stuff, there's hardly a movie that comes out now that they're not freaking out about. That's so true. For some yeah. reason or, you know, like the, the Barbie movie, there's something with Matt. There's this. The latest is over Snow White and the Seven Dwarves. There was the Little Mermaid freak out, whatever. And so the very thing that gave them a little bit of cultural power, which was them pointing out the 
obsessions and freakouts um, sometimes that went overboard from the left and being like, guys, like, calm down, relax. Yeah. There's a video game character with big tits who's a woman. How dare you? Right. Like, really? Who cares? We're right. Meltdown over the big tits. And that gave them actually a lot of sort of cultural cachet and right. power. Mm-hmm. Now they're right back to being the ones in full, constant moral panic mode. And I also just think on on these particular issues, gay rights, trans rights, the critical race theory stuff, they really learned the wrong lesson from the Glenn Youngkin success in Virginia. They thought that that was all about these like niche cultural fixations that they have. They've leaned into them super hard. And, you know, then they got the 2022 midterm results, but they seem to have learned nothing from that whatsoever. I guess they just think like, oh, well, maybe that was just about abortion, but it hasn't stopped them from offering insane takes on abortion either. So they just continue down this path of increasingly marginalized and fringe views, but drinking their own Kool-Aid and convincing themselves that this is some sort of popular political program. So Charles Barkley comes in and takes a 70% majority position and everybody's like shocked by it. Yeah, no, and I think just the way he put it is chef's kiss perfect. Yes. He's just, uh, he has a way with words. He's quite a wordsmith. Yeah, it's, and- it's such a compelling quality to see someone who's just free. You yeah, know, he's just no. going to say whatever the fuck And he means think. it, too. He would rather play golf every day anyway than yeah. do all these shows. It makes so. you wonder, too, like, why aren't there more voices like that? Because there are a lot of rich people on television who could just go and play golf or live their life or do whatever it is they want to do if they got canceled, quote unquote. And yet everybody seems so, you know, I think some of it. In. I think some of it is money. I think some of it is, um, you know notoriety and avoiding negative headlines type stuff. Like you want to be with the in popular crowd mm. who are wealthy and successful. You don't want to be an outcast and be, you know. Yeah, I think that's it. Yeah. And so it, look, it he's right, but it, it takes honestly somebody brave to like sort of stand up to the mob and be like, what the fuck are you babbling about? Shut the fuck up. Well, it's like the one good decision that CNN has made in recent years is to give him a show. So we'll see. How yeah, but I would I would prefer EJ, Kenny and Shaq to be with him. Just recreate NBA on TNT, but give him political topics. and yeah. say go have that we'll would see. be my ideal. We'll see. We'll yeah. Give it a shot. Um, OK, so there were some graphs that we talked about on breaking points that you found interesting as well. And I do want to hear your take on them. these were posted on Twitter. Um, the headline here is the increasing ideological differences on a variety of measures of sort of like how you feel about yourself, how you feel about the future, your levels of anxiety, huge discrepancies opening up between liberals and conservatives. So liberals are consistently saying like they feel worse about themselves. They're not satisfied with their lives. Their life seems meaningless. Um, they disagree with the sentiment. I enjoy life as much as anyone um, this one really jumped out at me, Kyle, that they were asked, you know, the future often seems hopeless. And you had the number of liberals agreeing with that sentiment really spiking and again, opening up a huge gap with conservatives on almost all of these measures of pessimism and personal dissatisfaction. The conservative number is on the rise as well, but the liberal number has really jumped up and opened up this kind of ideological chasm and how people feel about themselves, their lives and the future. What do you make of this? So let me first ask you, what do you make of that? I have a lot of thoughts, but what do you make of that? I mean, I think, first of all, I think, as Marianne says, it can be a sign of psychological health to have uh, negative feelings Ah, when there are negative things going on. Um, You know, more liberal, younger Americans are more likely to self-identify as liberal. So there's likely a big generational gap here. And, you know, for young people, unfortunately, I think it makes sense to have some level of pessimism about the future. 
we're living right now through this massive heat wave that's like global in nature. I think Phoenix has had 18 days in a row over 110 degrees. We had these huge floods in uh, New England. Right now, as we speak, if we walk outside, we're under some air warning alert because of the wildfires in Canada. All of this climate crisis seems to be marching forward unabated. So the, there's that piece when you ask like, hey, how do you feel about the future? That seems pretty grim. And then there's also the you know material conditions of uh, Gen Z and millennials who are struggling to be able to ever even imagine affording a house, being able to have a family, being able to have kids. Um, every milestone they're behind where older generations are. So if you have this generational divide, you can imagine boomers feeling like, yeah, it's pretty good. Like I'm pretty stable. I got a little nest egg. My investments did well. I've got a house. Like things feel pretty good to me. Whereas if you're younger and younger people, again, more likely to be liberal, you could see how your outlook would be a little more negative. So I'm in an interesting place uh, looking at these numbers because I'm somebody who's politically on the left, but I actually have very conservative qualities. Yeah, you do. So I consider myself uh, like very personally happy. Um, I think I'm pretty orderly and I'm like schedule oriented. You know, I, I, I feel like I'm not sort of uh, artistic and creative and haphazard. I'm very much more sort of by the book, one step after the other. Yeah. So for me to look at this, I'm not surprised, but it is sort of, um, it is sort of sad, right? Like I want people who are in agreement with me politically to be able to get some relief from this existential angst because apparently, you know, liberals and leftists rank higher on anxiety, depression, all sorts of uh, negative emotions, neuroticism, yeah. et cetera. So the first thing that came to mind when you told me this and when I looked at these charts is um, religious versus non-religious people. This is very similar to what we've seen uh, previously when they've done studies on religious versus non-religious people. It yeah. turns out that, you know, when somebody's in the hospital or on their deathbed or whatever, they're having a tremendous personal strife. Being religious actually helps massively. It makes people feel like there's something beyond this material world and like, you know, they're comfortable and, and, and relaxed and knowing that everything's going to be okay. There's God has a plan or whatever. Whereas if you're non-religious, you almost feel like, like I'm, I'm, I'm kind of screwed here, right? Like I'm, I'm in this in my own, I'm on, in this on my own and like, what am I going to do? Um, I would argue that also, part of this is just realistic versus non-realistic. You know, if you're somebody who is very attuned to the problems in the world today, you know about climate change, you know about corruption, you know about the lack of economic mobility, that can lead you to be more pessimistic because yeah. you're like, I, hey, I see the problems. They're real. What the hell are we going to do to fix this? It doesn't seem like the ball's moving in the right direction. So what the hell? That could bring about negative emotions. But what I would argue is um, I think that people on the left on top of just like fighting to genuinely fix these problems, which is a given, right? We right. all need to do that. We also should get better at compartmentalization because I think conservatives are, might be better at that as well, mm. which is like, there's, there's my public life, there's my private life. Like there's different aspects to your life. And can you shut out all the world's problems when you're with your kids and you're reading them a bedtime story? You know what I'm saying? Like, yeah. And uh, I think that people who are liberal or on the left, they're much more likely to just sort of let that existential angst crush them and not create little like safe havens for themselves from psychological ang angst and it's work right like you, you gotta it's actually it's actually a process to get to that point but i think people really should work on that because i mean this breaks my heart seeing the people who agree with me politically are basically all depressed anxiety ridden <laughs> uh you know de dealing with all these like psychological issues and 
You know, the one that um, I'm looking at the ones where there's the biggest divide. And as I mentioned before, one of them is on the future often seems hopeless, which, again, you look at climate, you look at the problems like that one makes sense to me. The one that I find kind of the most distressing or saddest is on the question of I take a positive attitude toward myself because it's that one you can't say like there's these external factors and it makes I mean, that's all just about how you're literally treating yourself, like what sort of grace you offer to yourself. And again, those numbers are on the rise, like disagreeing with the like basically taking a negative attitude toward yourself. Those numbers are on the ride for conservatives and for liberals. But there's a large and growing gap between liberals and conservatives. And that's that's the one that of, of all of these really kind of maybe bothers me the most. Another one where there's a significant gap is life often seems meaningless. But in general, when you think about the external assessments, it does make some sense that people who are broadly on the left versus people who are broadly on the right, people on the left, the orientation is like, we need to change things. There's things we need to do. There's work we need to do. We're in favor of larger changes versus smaller changes. Whereas the conservative, like the core conservative attitude is like, things are pretty good. We can like tinker around the edges, but like, let's just kind of keep going in the same direction that we're going in more or less. So there's some logic in general to people on the left having a greater sense of dissatisfaction with the country, the future, the direction that we're going in. The the personal traits here, negative traits, are harder for me to explain or wrap my head around. Was this just the U.S. or was this international? I think that this is just the U.S. Okay, well, in the context of the U.S., who is the right-wing leader? Trump. Obviously, right? right? Who's the left-wing leader? Biden. Now, I, w- I would argue we, there isn't even a left-wing leader, yeah. right? Like, the, the right has their, like, guiding North Star, how, however massively flawed he yeah. is. The left doesn't have that, you know? And, I, I mean, that might, that might have something to do with it. Uh, uh, the idea of, like, I have a negative view about myself, that is very sad to hear that people on the left are more likely to think poorly of themselves. But, you know... What I would say to those people is, like, you can't compare yourself to other people, which oftentimes gets people to that place. Yes. You need to compare yourself to you yesterday. I also think that I I do think this is where the generational piece comes back in. We have a lot of data about how young people are really suffering through a crisis of anxiety and depression, which is was already ongoing and was really accelerated by the pandemic. We also have increasing research that ties a lot of that to um, social media and smartphone usage. When the numbers start to spike is 2012. That's when social media in its current form really sort of takes off and the use of algorithms to keep people engaged and on the platform and incited and rageful and insecure and all of those things. So when that really takes off, it's also when smartphones reach a critical mass of um, pervasiveness in society. Now, I'm not saying that's 100% of what's going on, but I am increasingly convinced that that is some chunk of what's going on. And it ties in with what you were saying, Kyle, about like comparing yourself to others You know, if you're a spectator on Instagram looking at everybody else's like perfectly curated lives, that could contribute to this sense of inadequacy, this sense of like negative emotions about yourself. And there's even research about because the way that girls and boys are online can be different. Boys tend to gravitate more towards gaming, which apparently has fewer negative psychological impacts because you're doing something, you're a team, you're oftentimes with your friends doing it together. 
Whereas if you're a girl, you're more likely to be like scrolling TikTok or Instagram, and that seems to have more negative health consequences. So I think that speaks to that, like not measuring up to how you feel like everybody else is doing. I got good news for everybody, though. If they're worried about stuff like that, social media is literally like everybody is their own Kim Jong-un. They're doing North Korean level propaganda about my life is awesome. <laughs> Look at me frolicking on the beach with my boyfriend. <laughs> it's like, we all know you're miserable, Betty. Relax. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? So like, I, that's good news for everybody who like is trying to measure up against other people. And yeah. yeah, like, don't don't worry. It's all that's all fake. Anybody who goes down that path of like social media obsession, they are not happy. I can guarantee you that. Now, having said that, I do think it is a little overstated how much like, you know, smartphones add to us, uh, you know, feeling shitty. I, I think there's a point there, but also at the same time, I think we sort of overlook the massive positive things that come about from having uh, the internet available to us 24 hours a day where we have like, you know, all the knowledge that the world has ever garnered at our fingertips at any given moment. Yeah. So what I would say is this. Um, to the idea that a lot more on the left think life often seems meaningless. I think the right has their, you know, cookie cutter answers on like the meaning of life. It's like God, family, country, I'm done. You know, like this is what we've been taught. This is what we know. It's God, family, country in that order, or maybe a slightly different order, but that's what it is. Right. And so when you have that, what feels like a sense of objective meaning, you're going to rest a lot easier because you know what you have to do. Even if you don't measure up to the thing that you have to do, you know you have to do that, right? On the left, there's going to be more of a sense of it, it's subjective, right? Like, what is your reason for living? What's your uh, meaning of life? And it's like, you know, uh, it's subjective. You can pick something. And when you can pick something, it's almost like paralysis by analysis because you have all the options in the world. And so people oftentimes settle on nothing. It's like the path of least resistance. They default to like, I'm just ex existing. And there is no actual meaning for them. And I think that that's a huge, huge issue. Uh, because, you know, ideally when a kid's young, you, you know, you start them out in a whole bunch of different activities and, and see what they like. And then they get obsessed with it. And then they use that as, a, you know, a defining thing of their life. And if you're unfortunate enough to not have gone through that process and not have narrowed it down from five things to one thing or two things, mm -hmm. then oftentimes you're just in no man's land. You're in this weird limbo where it's like you're existing, but you don't know why you're doing what you're doing. Yeah. And But look, that can be that can be fixed. It's not easy, but it can be fixed. You have to actually try to pick up various things, whether it be hobbies, whether it be a profession, something you actually care about and you want to get up out of bed in the morning. And I just think that with people on the right, I think many on the right are more authoritarian by nature. And so it's like, what's the chain of command? Who am I listening to? Okay, it's my mom and my dad. Got it. Right. And so then they have their answers. God, family, country, uh, like we'll work with it. Uh, and even throw, you know, I said God, so religion is part of that. But with people on the left, it's a little more like it's open, right? What, yeah. What's your meaning? Well, it's subjective. Okay, but it's subjective, but you should pick something that objectively makes you feel like you have meaning and go down that path aggressively. And I think that doesn't happen a lot today. And so that leads to these devastating numbers that we see right here. Yeah. Do you think there's also an element of kind of like ignorance is bliss? Like if I don't believe in the climate Absolutely. Crisis, I mean, and, and, and I'm just going to accept like God, heaven, whatever. Like I'm just going to not think too hard about the way things are and the way things could be better. It's just like, it is what it is. Yeah, and that's what we that learned. That is sort of psychologically comforting. <laughs> yeah, and that's what we learned in the religious versus non-religious studies. Yeah. That there's a big element of that. So if you, if you don't think too hard about it and you just think like, yeah, these are the answers I've been given, true enough, you know? Yeah, there's a sense of comfort in that. You know, there's a sense of comfort in that. Yeah. So I think that, uh, 
it's paralysis of analysis. It's a lack of any sense of objective meaning. And, and you know, it, it's a shame. I would love to see uh, people who are on the left and people who are liberals be just as happy as conservatives or happier. And um, it looks like it's the perfect storm where <laughs> that's not happening. And uh, it, it's also kind of sad as like a rallying cry to try to get people on your side. Like, Come with us. Come we're miserable. miserable with it's us. Like, <laughs> it's, it's, it's terrible. It's you like, know? Maybe I'll just continue not thinking about these problems that seems nicer that's what a lot of people are doing i mean we should fix the problems but also i wish people could compartmentalize better and create meaning in their own lives better but clearly they're struggling yeah you gotta i mean in a sense you gotta live in a moment you have to be able to um recognize like the very real problems that society faces that the planet faces that are really in our face right now with the wildfires and floods and extreme temperatures and whatever but also be able to enjoy like the pleasures of life and the thing that things that personally sort of like satisfy and fulfill you and i understand that's not always easy final point i wonder how much those numbers would go up among liberals on the left if we had universal health care, if we had free college, if we yeah. got rid of the medical debt, if we got rid of the student loan debt, if we had higher wages, if we had stronger unions, if we ended the wars, if we did a massive investment uh, bigger than what we got in the IRA to try to get off of fossil fuels and towards... Would be huge. You think, you think that would change I those do. numbers significantly? I do, because some of the other studies I've seen about, you know, factors in people's lives that contribute to personal happiness is how much control you feel like you have over your day. And so if you're in debt and you're having to work two jobs that you hate and make you miserable and, you know, you're, you're sort of like backup is up against the wall every day, you're going to feel like you don't have a lot of control over what you're doing day to day, hour to hour. And so if you had a reasonable floor under people where they felt that, you know, relief and the ability to evaluate their options, the flexibility to pursue something that they may really enjoy the way that, you know, we're so fortunate be- to be able to work in a field that we actually care about and get fulfillment out of. Yeah, I think that'd be a game changer. Absolutely. So in other words, you think, um, you don't think there's an element of, uh, it's sort of in the nature of a liberal. I mean, I think there's an element of that. But you have to explain why the numbers are diverging so sharply right now. Right. I'm saying some people would make the argument that it's just in the nature of a liberal, that they are just more anxious. They are just more neurotic. They are just more depressive. That's what some people I'm not saying I necessarily agree with that. I'm just saying some people make that argument that it's a priori the case. I I mean, I, I actually do think there's an element of that. I wouldn't describe it as like more neurotic. I would describe it as if you're a liberal and you are more comfortable with and more desirable of big change, then you're obviously going to see bigger problems in the system as it exists. Whereas if you're a conservative and you're sort of like, yeah, things are good. Let's just like tweak it maybe a little bit, but let's basically keep things going. Then you're going to be more satisfied with the state of affairs as they exist. I understand what you're saying, but that's that's I don't think that's an a priori thing. You're saying they're analyzing it and then feeling that way. Where the point some people make is, even if we got all the things that liberals wanted, the numbers would still be like this. That's just how they are. Genetically, basically. <laughs> Genetically. Maybe. I don't know. Yeah, it's a very complex conversation. Mm-hmm. But either way, I feel uh, I feel bad. <laughs> that's, that's not, that's up. Feel better, guys. Guys. Hang in there. Get happier, please. Yeah. <laughs> all right. Now, having said all that, uh, allow me to introduce Zach and Gavin of the Vanguard. Let's kick it off. Zach and Gavin of the Vanguard. Thanks for joining me. I appreciate it, guys. Yeah, we're super excited, and you're dressed in all all on theme for the Barbie uh, premiere this weekend. Uh, holy <laughs> shit, it's, it's so good to be here with a uh, real-life Ken doll. 
You know, it's funny. Mm-hmm. I who plays Ken? Who is it? Like Ryan Gosling? I think it's Ryan, Ryan Gosling. Gosling, man. Ken from Barbie. I'm just looking it up right now because I want to see who pulls off the blonde better. You're a dead ringer. Uh, let's see. Oh, when I type in Ken from Barbie, I just see literal Kendall. Oh, there he is. There he is. There's Ryan Gosling. No, I think I pull it off better. I think he. I think he looks a little smug. Um, I think the six Honestly, pack is you, overkill. You beat him to the punch. You've been paying your dues for a while now. Bro, let me tell you, I've seen like five or six people after me do it, and I'm like, I don't know, I kind of got there first. Like, everybody sort of bite my style a little bit. Honestly, ahead of the curve. That's what I do, man. That's what I do. <laughs> yeah, that's So hilarious. anyways, it's great to talk to you guys. Really happy to have you here with me today. And uh, we were talking the other day, um, and there was a list of some issues that we were both interested in getting into. So we got Marianne, RFK, Cornell West, uh, the Republican primary, and Justice Democrats, which has been in the news recently. So um, let's start with Marianne, because I know that you guys are, uh, you know, if you if I'm considered like the chief Marianne supporter among the online left, you guys are like right there behind me, or if not, maybe even surpassing me a little bit. So what are your thoughts on her campaign and how everything's going? Yeah, sure. So again, thanks so much for having us on, Kyle. Really excited to get into a lot of this electoral politics um, with you. And yeah, Marion Williamson is, has proven to be a really interesting candidate. She's the candidate that I'm supporting in the Democratic Party primary. I think she's the most progressive candidate in that primary, the candidate whose uh, platform most aligns, honestly, with Bernie Sanders, who, of course, I supported in 2016 and 2020. So the reason why I am a supporter of Marion Williamson is just really that simple. She supports progressive politics that I also support. Um, and honestly, there's not much competition right now, at least as far as the Democratic Party primary goes. Not terribly impressed by RFK Jr. And obviously, I'm not going to vote for Joe Biden. Didn't do that last time. Not going to do it this time. Um, so yeah, I think she's the most progressive candidate in the Democratic primary. Um, but if she doesn't win the Democratic primary, then I am excited to probably vote for Cornell West in the general election, assuming that he does win the Green Party primary, which I think he basically has on lock. Um, so yeah, that's what I would say about that. It's been interesting tracking Marianne's campaign. It's kind of been one of Zach and I's beat over on the Vanguard. We've kind of, you know, followed it since the beginning, have had her on a couple of times, had on various people from the staff. Um, we've reported on some of the bumps in the road as she's, you know, lost campaign managers and tried to recover from that. So it's definitely been a bit of a a rough campaign so far, I think. Um, it remains to be seen if Marion Williamson's gonna be able to pull it off. But I think that, you know, every campaign has its ups and downs. And so far I've been for the most part pretty impressed with hers. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, oh. go ahead. Go ahead. Oh, no, I was just going to piggyback onto that. And I think that one of the things that was really important about the Marianne Williamson campaign that was uh, something that Gavin and I really, uh, you know, latched onto from Jump was uh, the fact that she was willing to do it. She was the one that was willing to get in the race first and say, hey, guys, somebody needs to challenge Joe Biden. Somebody needs to introduce these uh, progressive policies back to the mainstream. The people want it. The people deserve it. Uh, and we need to have somebody that's going to go out there and make that case. And that was before there was Cornell West. That was before there was RFKJ, who we can get into later because we have a lot of thoughts on him as well. Um, but this was somebody who said, look, Joe Biden has failed the American people. And I hope for the best or, you know, this is Marianne speaking, obviously. She hoped for the best from, uh, you know, Joe Biden. She, you know, turned around and supported him in 2020 after, uh, you know, she lost in the Democratic primary um, three years ago. But she said, you know, frankly, his work was inadequate. And I agreed with that. And and yeah, she had a, a very extensive, uh, you know, 
plan. You know, it, it really did mirror that of the Bernie Sanders campaign, right? One of the things we talked about a lot uh, in the 2020 race is how Bernie Sanders redefined the expectations for policy on your campaign website, right? This is not a website that's filled with platitudes. Uh, you know, we're going to be better together and like, you know, let's fix this America. And, you know, we're not a, uh, you know, a party, we're a movement of people and stuff. No, it has actual solutions to the problems that people are recognizing all around them. And I was really inspired by that. On top of the fact that I just think that, you know, Marianne Williamson is a very empathetic, uh, very powerful speaker. Uh, so I was really enthused by uh, you know, her ability to kind of get that all started. Uh, obviously, you know, there have been some bumps in the road that Gavin alluded to. Um, you know, our good friend of the show, Carlos Cardona, has taken over as campaign manager. So we're excited to see where it goes from here. Uh, I would love to see Marianne Williamson get on the debate stage with Joe Biden and RFK Jay uh, and really kind of beat home the fact that you know, she is the best representation of the Democratic Party as most Democratic Party voters want it to be, as most Democratic Party voters envision it. I think she is the moderate for the party. I think she's a great bell ringer. I think Gavin and I have talked about the fact that, you know, she might not be as like radical on some issues uh, that Gavin and I are. But I think if you take her and you compare her to obviously any of the two other options, but basically anybody else that you could imagine running in a Democratic Party primary, uh, I, I think that I think that she really does uh, hit down the middle in a way that a, a progressive like me or Gavin or you, Kyle, could vote for her in that primary. But also somebody who you know is a little bit removed from politics, they're not going to be startled away from her again in a way that's her own, uh, but you know kind of echoes that Bernie Sanders not intimidating. Um, but like inviting, you know, Democratic Party politics. So, um, Gavin, you made an interesting point about Biden that I want to get back to later. And I also want to you guys both touched on uh, RFK a little bit, which we could talk about later. But before we get to that. So here's my kind of difficult question. I'm not even sure I have an answer for it, but like we see where she's at in the polls. She's kind of like just treading water, depending on what poll you look at is between like six percent and nine percent. Um, which is not bad. I mean, the fact that we have an incumbent Democratic president and you have one candidate who's at like 17 percent in RFK and one that's at about 9 percent in Marion Williamson, like this, it's not nothing. Right. But at the same time, what should she do to, like, get more attention, garner more support? Because we are at this point now where there's been a little bit of a plateau effect and it's a it's a massive uphill climb. So in this theoretical world here, we're going to say that both of you are her campaign manager and she's going to listen to whatever advice that you give her. What would you tell her to do in order to get more eyeballs, get more support, et cetera? All right, I'll take this one. So one of the things that we often point out and, and draw a parallel to, and I know you'll you'll probably know more about this and, and remember it better than we do, Kyle, because uh, we were listening to you when this was happening, uh, uh, unfolding. Back in uh, 2015, right, uh, the big thing that broke, this was Gavin and I's senior year of high school, uh, and nobody would shut the fuck up about uh, Bernie Sanders after the Nurses Union endorsement. It was like, it became overnight, it was like, this guy has a real shot. This guy could be the dude that, you know, does it. Could he take on Hillary? Uh, when when did that happen? I think we looked at it. It was like August, right? It was like right when I it was like right when school was starting senior year. I remember I was in my AP Gov class with uh, shout out to Stu Stern. Um, but anyway, uh, that was a big tide turning moment, right? Because this was a guy that couldn't be denied. It was it, it was just everybody. It was just without it went without saying that 
every union was going to endorse Hillary because she was going to be the Democratic Party nominee. Like she was going to be coronated, right? It, it was just about, it was a matter of time. It was like a foregone conclusion. And when the nurses union said, actually, no, uh, we believe in Medicare for all. We are nurses because we want to take care of people. We want to raise, we want, we are part of the backbone of this country. We are a union, um, you know, and we're with this guy because he's had our back, you know, for decades. Um, you know, that really changed the game. And, and obviously you can't manufacture that overnight. But I think that if I, there was one piece of advice that I would give to the Marianne Williamson campaign, it would be just bust your ass to get some union support because that is going to draw a firm line uh, between the, the kind of media portrayal that is going to be tried to hoist on her. Oh, she's just the, uh, you know, the wine mom candidate. You know, they try and make her look ditzy. They do every sexist, you know, uh, camp, uh, ploy in the book and they like excuse it for some reason because she's like a fringe candidate, right? Uh, but if you have the blue collar union guys standing behind you, uh, you know, I'm not saying it has to be the union, uh, the Teamsters, right? Uh, or I mean, sorry, the uh, nurses union. It could be the Teamsters, right? Look at the uh, moment that we have going on right now. We have a potential massive UPS Teamster strike, 300,000 members strong. We have the WGA strike. We have the uh, SAG strike going on right now. I think that if she could, you know, kind of use her leverage to get involved in, in those things, uh, you know, get on TV with uh, Fran Drescher and talk about how, uh, yes, the uh, SAG strike matters, uh, right? Uh, the, these actors are workers too, right? And we can all see them and we can all support them. And this makes it easier for other unions to grow. Uh, I think that's got to be the lane because I think that uh, it, it creates more validity. Uh, it makes her undeniable as like a credible, serious candidate uh, that's willing to, uh, to work to uplift the working class. And it also dispels any of the whole like, unrelatable, like, you know, fringe wealth, like conspiracy theory. And Otis is like, no, dude, nothing's more boots on the ground than unions. Um, so that would be my advice. Yeah, I, I totally agree with that. Zach, if I had to add something, I would tell Marianne if I was her campaign manager, and honestly, this might already be her strategy to some extent, but I would just say, go all in on New Hampshire and basically screw everything else. Like, don't campaign in South Carolina. I heard like Andrew Yang was talking about doing campaign events for her in South Carolina. I don't even know why she would campaign in South Carolina. Like obviously Joe Biden's going to win that state. If I were her team, I would just go all in on New Hampshire. Um, and if there's any chance at all of her winning the New Hampshire primary, if Joe Biden's not on the ballot, I mean, that's their golden ticket. Not that that would guarantee her the nomination, but if they have any chance in hell of actually giving Joe Biden a run for his money in this primary, I think Marianne's going to have to come out of the gate strong, winning New Hampshire. Um, and then we'll see if that momentum can carry forward into the other 49 states. But yeah, I would just go all in on New Hampshire, to be honest, in addition to really, really trying hard to court some union support. Can I ask so, you guys a question? Go ahead. Just, I was going to I was gonna comment to on that of... too, but I'll come back to it. Go ahead. My, the only thing I wanted to add was, do you, uh, do you guys think that it... it it's even possible in this day and age to to do that, you know, state by state strategy, or will they just throw such an astronomical amount of money into ads in every single state after New Hampshire that it just becomes impossible for Marianne to ever, you know, e even be seen on any mainstream media, like just complete blackout. I'm just, I mean, if she wins New Hampshire, it's going to be really hard for them to black it out, that out. That'll be huge news, you know? Well, I mean, remember, Bernie kind of won the first three contests. And then between Biden winning South Carolina and all of the centrists dropping out and endorsing Biden, that was sort of the knife in his back that they twisted. So it is theoretically possible to like have a really banger first three states and then just like shit the bed. So oh, totally. We see that all the time with the Republicans, too. 
Yeah. So, all right. I, I got a couple thoughts here. So on the South Carolina thing, I understand why you'd make that argument, especially seeing, you know, Bernie do abysmally in South Carolina. It's like, why waste your time? Why waste your money and your resources? It's not worth it. But at the same time, Marianne in particular, throughout her career, she's gotten a lot of support from black women in particular. And so I think the the reception that she gets in South Carolina is honestly different and a little better than what Bernie got there. So that's one point. So I wouldn't totally write off South Carolina. I still think it's unlikely for her to do well there, um, but I, I wouldn't totally write it off. As far as the unions go, I think it's a good idea to get union support because, you know, union support is always welcome and we're pro-union and it does sort of make her seem more like, you know, I'm looking out for blue collar workers. The idea of being like this liberal elitist sort of gets washed away on that front. But there's another problem in that a lot of unions have already come out and endorsed Joe Biden, which obviously I don't think they should have done that in the same way. I don't think any of the so-called progressives in Congress should have done that. Uh, And they did, too, unfortunately, many of them. So then that leaves us. And this is what I've been struggling with thinking about her campaign, too. It's like, so what the hell do we actually do? I think the advice you give is good. Are those going to be like breakthrough things? And then, look, it all comes back to me like I can't get away from this thought. Modern day politics is just like a circus now. Right. Like Trump is leading by a gazillion points in the Republican primary. Why? Because he's the show. He's the circus, you know, and he's a showman. And he also triggers the liberals and the liberals are obsessed with him. And then he's under like 47 different indictments, which in any er other era, it'd be like, oh, you're done. Get out of here. But in the modern day era, it's like as long as you're triggering the liberals, as long as you're triggering the other side, then the conservatives are going to absolutely love you. And oh, you're getting indicted. Okay, well, then people are going to think there's a witch hunt against you. So you go up even more in the polls. And so I, I don't know how to like harness this dynamic and sort of replicate it on the Democratic side with Marianne, or if that's even possible, if Democratic voters react like Republican voters. But I mean, my instinct is I like the advice you guys gave her, but I would also tell her, like, first of all, say yes to almost every interview that, you know, somebody comes to you, say, hey, will you do this show or that show? I would say yes to almost every single one of them. Beyond that, I would say be way more aggressive in terms of rhetoric. And then I'd also say, like, you got to start like, I like how when she went on Fox News a bunch of times and she, like, fought with Sean Hannity and stuff like that, I think that uh, negative polarization, even though it's overall, like, a bad thing, I don't think it's a healthy thing, I think it's unavoidable that you need some of that in order to, like, actually gain the popularity among your own party and eventually win the primary. So, like, going on Fox News and fighting Sean Hannity, going on Fox News and fighting Jesse Waters, going on, you know, Maria Bartiromo's show and fighting with her, having a moment go viral, like, I think these are things that ultimately... Uh, would would help her in the long run. I think those are sort of like her best moments. Yeah, no, I do. I do totally agree with that. And I do actually think it's more of a Republican Party right wing thing, that phenomenon you mentioned, Kyle, where they're so attracted to just like the craziest candidate, the circus candidate. I mean, I just don't, unfortunately, honestly, kind of see that replicated on the left as much or on the Democratic side, which isn't always the left, but you know what I mean. Um, I think that goes for like, where they get their news from too. A lot more right-wingers, in my opinion, seem to be a lot more comfortable just getting their news from YouTube hosts and you know random people online that have opinions, which I don't have any problem with. I mean, that's what literally Zach and I do for a living. It seems like Democrats, lefties tend to have more of a bias towards like, like establishment voices or not even necessarily establishment, but just voices that are like quote unquote serious or like taken seriously. And the same goes with presidential candidates. Um, so I don't think that like a character like Trump would even have any success on the Democratic Party side. 
um, like the same way he was able to on the Republican side. But who knows, right? Maybe maybe someone would be able to come along and really kind of like capitalize on that brash populist energy. So I saw an interesting poll that Crystal actually sent it to me the other day. It was on, it had all like the candidates on the Democratic side as well. Would you, I'm just going to ask you to take a wild guess, just a, a, a stab in the dark here. What do you think RFK's favorability rating is among Democratic voters? You're going to love this fact. Gavin, you made me go first last time. You got to, you got to get out there first this time. Just take it's a wild guess. I'm not going to, not going to hold it against you. Just I know that guess. the, I know that it's going to be higher with Republicans than Democrats. Um, what is it in the negatives? No, but it's it's nine percent. He has a nine. Uh, I was going to say twenty three. He has a Damn. nine. See, I would have guessed something like that too, like twenty three, thirty two, something like that. He has a nine percent favorability rating among Democratic voters. So Dude, that's why is, I don't think he's a real threat, though. That's why I don't think he's a real oh, threat, he's though, because oh, he's, he's, he's literally not. just got a, nobody that's going to participate in the Democratic Party primary is falling for his schlock, right? Uh, it's a bunch of people who, uh, you know, uh, watch dubious programming on the internet, right? That gives them uh, some, uh, you know, misinformation about, you know, certain things uh, like vaccines and, uh, you know, the new world order and all. I mean, we could get into the anti-Semitic crazy shit that he was saying a few days ago. That's just not going to work with Democratic primary voters, much to what Gavin said, right? Uh, they're they want they're they're more than the Republicans, right? There is a certain subset subsect of Republicans, you know, like my mother. Uh, where, you know, it's like the flag over everything and like the veneer of the greatness of America and like stuff like that, right? But most of the Republican Party has shred that to pieces, right? But the Democrats, as Gavin was pointing to, they're still married to the mirage. They're still married to the pomp and circumstance. They want all the mythology. They want all the pageantry, right? Uh, and so when you see a guy like RFKJ, that would humiliate them. They would never, ever, 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 ever get a guy like, R get behind a guy like RFKJ, Um which is why I think it's crazy that he's still showing up at like 18 or 19 percent in these polls, because these are not these are clearly not likely Democratic voters, not to just hijack the wheel for a second there. But I, I think it's crazy. No, I mean, the thing that he doesn't understand, uh, and apparently Dennis Kucinich, who's his campaign manager, who was not a bad politician when he was a politician, but actually a not, good uh, person. He seemed. Like yeah, exactly. But what they're not understanding is in order to win a Democratic primary, you also need normie democratic voters so rfk even though i agree that like fauci is a fraud potentially a criminal right like he pushed uh what's it called the the research into the gain of function I, and gain of function research i don't know why i was blanking on that randomly but yeah like and and that potentially could have led to you know covid getting out whatever like all that's that's true true but he wrote a whole book about how like fauci is a demon and you're running in a Democratic primary where like 80% of the voters deify Fauci. So I just don't understand like why why even pick this primary? Like he's literally yeah. running in the wrong primary. He's doing the right wing podcast circuit and everybody's <laughs> jerking each other off and sucking each other off. He was talking about Elon Musk like, oh, Elon, you're a hero. You're so amazing, Elon. And then you're running as a Democrat. Like you think that's going to work, homie? That's not even that's not going to come close to working. Yeah. So you're right. The numbers that they're getting, it's not likely Democratic voters because among likely Democratic voters, Marianne Williamson is definitely going to eclipse RFK at one point or another because she's actually more on the left and appeals not just to the actual left and independent left leaning voters, but also to some normie Democrats. Yeah. See, the thing about RFK, it's kind of like Tulsi Gabbard. 
He's actually a more valuable commodity to the right-wing media if he's pretending to be a Democrat. If he's like, oh, no, I am a Democrat. And all the other ones have gone crazy. That's why I need to you know, challenge Joe Biden and save this party or whatever. And then the, the Republicans worship that. They love that. Um, again, we saw the exact same thing with Tulsi Gabbard, who eventually did just become a Republican or maybe an independent. I don't know if she's officially a Republican yet, but we all know that she actually is, right? Um, so I think that's an interesting aspect of it. I also think it's interesting how RFK, like, he will own some of the most controversial stances, like for for example, his one on vaccines. That's undeniably an incredibly controversial stance that's out of the mainstream, um, out of the medical mainstream, all that stuff. Um, and he'll own that. You know, to his credit, he'll go on podcasts and debate his stance. I see. I genuinely think it's something he believes in. Um, I don't know how he could spend so much time focused on if it, on it if it wasn't something he believed in. Um, but then when it comes to other statements, like when he said you know, Roger Waters is a hero. As soon as there's a little bit of media backlash, he immediately comes out and and deletes it and apologize and, and starts, you know, begging for forgiveness from APAC. Oh, I'm so sorry. I didn't realize that one time Roger Waters uh, supported BDS. Uh, never mind, delete. It's like, how can you have so much bravery to stand up for your controversial take on vaccines, which happens to be a dog shit take, by the way, but then have a correct stance on something that's also controversial, but not be able to have any principles there. I find it all very weird. And yeah, I think it's very, very notable how seemingly the only people that he's interacting with going on their shows and and you know being endorsed by or getting a lot of enthusiasm from are all right-wingers. This guy's going on fucking Jordan Peterson, Ben Shapiro, like every right-wing hack podcast in the fucking book. Um, and it, it really is bizarre. It's like, do you not know which primary you're running in? Do you not know which voters listen to these shows you're going on. Um, I think it does give people reason to wonder if he has another goal in mind, like a third party or independent run, or if he's trying to, you know, get on the, in the Trump administration, or if there's another calculus at work here. Because yeah, obviously he's not appealing to Democratic Party voters. Obviously he's not going to be able to beat Joe Biden appealing to the kind of voters that he's appealing to right now. So well, what you forgot, Gavin, is that he can actually bench four plates with his shirt off. So let's not discount the man's credentials for presidency. Which, by the way, he admitted he's on testosterone replacement therapy, which for those of you who don't know is literally legal steroids, which for those of you who don't know is made by Big Pharma, which for those of you who so don't know is the main how, target okay. of his ire. But let me uh, yeah, let me there, react to there's that. A, God, yeah, no, that's what I've always thought was so funny is all the vaccine skeptic dudes, they have, they're like, I don't know, bro. All I do is eat elk meat and inject steroids, bro. But keep that, keep that vaccine away from me, bro. I don't know what's in there. And it's just like, okay, dude, like I, I get that, um, you know, a little inconsistent there. You, you know, you get the, uh, you get the juice from the same guy that makes the jab. So, well, listen, interesting what, I, what I never understood, what I never understood about the anti-vax types is that they're so hesitant about this one thing. Oh, don't, no, don't get that near me. Don't put it in my body. My body's pure. I want to keep it that way. You're crazy. Stay away from me. The second one of them actually gets COVID, they throw the kitchen sink at it. They're like, give me literally everything you have. Give me the, the, uh, the monoclonal antibodies. Give me uh, remdesivir. Give me this drug. Give me that drug. And it's like, bro, if you just had this same mentality of like, I'm just, I'm going to try to fight this thing however I can. If you just have that same mentality before you get COVID too, that's what it is when people take the vaccine. And of course, the evidence is overwhelming that it protects you from severe illness, hospitalization, and death. It's so fucking selective. And that's what drives me crazy. It crosses the line from being like, I'm skeptical of big pharma to I'm skeptical of modern medicine. 
And then ironically, these are the same people who will act like alternative medicine cranks are telling the truth. When honestly, alternative medicine, these people are even bigger ripoffs than Big Pharma. For all my issues with Big Pharma, the problem with Big Pharma is the profit motive. It's not that the, the stuff doesn't work, because it does work. It's not the scientific method. Right, you actually have rigorous studies that go into this thing, and that's why every time you see a pharma commercial on TV, which, by the way, shouldn't exist. We shouldn't have pharma commercials on TV. One but they have to list countries. all the fucking side effects because they test the shit out of it. Whereas with yeah. some shit you get from, uh, you know, alternative medicine people, my dad is dead because of an alternative medicine bullshit crank. A guy who, you know, for people who don't know, uh, chiropractic medicine is this idea, like, you know, People who understand it properly know it's like a glorified backcracker. That's what a chiropractor is. But there's this theory behind it, back to the origin of it, where they said, no, the reason why you have any illness you've ever had is because your spine is not aligned straight. And so it's called subluxation theory is what they call it. And it's like, oh, we need to align your spine right so you don't get sick. And my dad kept going to one of these people when he had severe back pain. And they said, keep coming back. We're going to work that out. We're going to fix it. The pain he was feeling in his back was a fucking tumor. And then by the time you went to a real doctor, it was too late. He had stage four cancer. So that's what you get from alternative medicine assholes. You have people who are like, hey, keep coming to me. Keep paying me, buddy. We'll take care of that. And at the end of the day, it's just it's just smoke and mirrors. It's a mirage. They're not actually helping you. They're shaking you down. So I have very little tolerance for people who don't accept anything about modern medicine and science. But, they, you know, they'll they'll hawk the most insane fake cures imaginable because, hey, this is what they are trying to keep this truth from you. It's like, no, you're just a sucker and you fell for it. Right. Also something I've noticed with a lot of the anti-vaxxers, and this is kind of a trajectory that I predicted at the uh, outset of all of this like anti-vax boom, um, you know, back in like 2021 or whenever they rolled that out. Um, it seemed like a lot of people at first were like, Oh, no, I'm skeptical of this one, but I, I'm obviously not anti-vax. Like, uh, duh, we all think anti-vaxxers are stupid, of course. Um, but then a couple of years go by and they start listening to more and more right-wing media. You know, this Jimmy Dore specifically, I think this applies to. Um, and now all of a sudden he is full anti-vax. Like, literally he was all also vaccines. doing He was also doing climate change denial stuff. Denial, recently. yeah, yeah. The I don't know if Institute you guys crap. caught that. Listen, yes, I did. And, and this is maybe a problem with me and the way I view the world, but I make the mistake of giving people the benefit of the doubt too much and accepting them yeah. at face value. So for the longest time, you know, my perception of him was, yeah, he's gone overboard. Yeah, he's going too far. But you know what? Ultimately, he is on the left and attacking Democrats from the left. But right. then as time went on, that became a less and less viable position. And the reality yep. starts to be, no, I think you're playing to your fucking audience, son. Yeah, I think you're telling them exactly what they want to hear. Because he knows climate yeah. change. He knows climate change <laughs> is real. He knows that. Oh, yeah. On vaccines, yeah. he may have actually been convinced that the anti-vax position is correct because there's a lot of misinformation out there. And he's probably getting, reading a lot of shitty sources, right? Fair enough. But you know that climate change is real. And you're out there doing anti-climate change stuff now. It's just so sad. It's just playing to the audience. is pathetic. Yeah, no, 100%. Um, I don't know if you know what the Schiller Institute is, but they seem to be one of the chief kind of like propaganda machines that's spreading this line that people like Jimmy Dore and Jackson Hinkle keep repeating about climate change, RFK Jr. as well. And it's really, really weird to see it happen. Um, but yeah, I, I totally agree with that, Kyle. And yeah, going back to the vaccine thing, it's it's just so wild to see people who at first were like, oh yeah, no, obviously I'm pro-vax. I just have suspicions about this this one because of the like the mRNA technology, it's more experimental, whatever. But then slowly but surely, they just literally do become full-on anti-vaxxers who, again, we all agreed 
two or three or four years ago were total morons. Um, yeah, so, and R so, yeah. RFK is the he's like he's one of the old school anti vaxxers from like right. the late '90s and early 2000s, and a lot of those claims have been so colossally debunked. All you need is one fucking Google search of anything he says to fact check the shit out of it. We had this guy in the show not that long ago, Doctor Wilson, who went like super nuanced and detailed with a fine-tooth comb through uh, some of RFK Jr.'s comments on Joe Rogan's show. And literally every single fucking claim, you just Google it, and it's like, this is not even close to correct. Like, he's just, he's super wrong. When Crystal interviewed him the first time and was sort of holding him accountable a little bit and pushing against him a little bit, he made this claim, and then after the show, he was like, oh, I'll send you the source, I'll send you the source for it. So he sends Crystal the source. The claim was something like, people who get the vaccine actually have COVID at a higher rate than people who don't get the vaccine. So after the show, he sends Crystal the source. Crystal reads, not even the full study, just the abstract of the study. The very next line is, when you control for all the factors you're supposed to control for, which is like age, obesity, pre-existing conditions, etc. It's the exact opposite. It's obviously you get way a lot of protection from getting the vaccine. So at this point, it's like, I don't know. Are you just a fucking idiot or are you lying on purpose? Because your own fucking source that you just sent Crystal says the exact opposite of the thing you said it said. So what is it? Is it malicious? Is it nefarious? Or are you just a fucking idiot? I what I think it is, what I think it is, Kyle, is uh, I think that what has happened and, and look, I'm not trying to play armchair psychologist, right? But I'm going to, right? Because I do like that. Uh, RFKJ <laughs> was the uh, ultimate rich boy Nepo baby, okay? And I think that's how you have to understand him, bro. Like, he is in love with his own life story. The dude will not shut the fuck up about how, oh, these are Kennedy people, and these are your people, and these people belong to you, and you're gonna govern them, and you're gonna... Like, but he never accomplished anything, right? He never did anything with his own life. He pretended that he was an environmental activist for a while, but really, he just lived off the millions and his inheritance and the clout that comes with the Kennedy name in America, right? Uh, so what is he doing now that he's old? He's realizing that his life is, you know, kind of at the end of its rope. He hasn't accomplished anything. He's never lived up and amounted to the grand visions that he had of himself where he is walking amongst the likes of his uncle, JFK, and his father, Bobby Kennedy, right? And I think that that's why he won't shut the fuck up about it. And he has to feel like he's like breaking news. He has to feel like he's doing something legendary, something historical. So he's fully concentrated on this vaccine issue. And, and he cannot be confronted with the truth because he refuses to believe it because it's what his entire identity, it's what his entire worldview is staked on, right? And so what is he doing now? He's indulging himself by going on to all of these podcasts. And he, the, the, the people that are hosting those shows, they know that he's playing a role. Look at how the Demo even the Democrats agree with us. Vote for our guy, not this guy. The Democrats agree with us, though. All the good Democrats agree with us. And here's RFK. Look, he's a Kennedy. He agrees with us, right? So he's going on there and he's playing this very specific role to them. But to him, he's on here and he's breaking news to everybody. Uh, he's awakening the world. Uh, you know, he's leading them uh, towards something greater. Uh, and it's only him, you know, and I just think he's built up this huge fantasy, right? And we've seen that that's what running for president is now in this country, right? Donald Trump had his own distorted fantasy. He had his own distorted hubris, his own, you know, just extreme narcissism and self-confidence and obviously, um, you know, name recognition uh, and a 
a bunch of money. Uh, and and I, I think that this is just kind of the extension of that. Uh, so I think that it is actually just extreme self-delusion and extreme narcissism that gives you a guy like RFKJ because I don't think that he means to come out and be nefarious. I, I think that, uh, you know, he he's just living in such a distorted worldview uh, that he's he's actively being harmful. I, I don't mean to excuse any of the like, you know, wrong commentary that he's, you know, peddled and, you know, potentially the damage that he's caused with that. Uh, but, but I really think it is just a byproduct of his own delusion illusions uh in the fact that um you know th that's that's where it's taken him so when he came out the other day and he said the thing about like actually there's some evidence that maybe for ashkenazi jews and for the chinese COVID affects them much less severely than it affects everybody else and there's like bioweapon research and it's happening everywhere it was happening in ukraine and that's what russia was afraid of this and he did this whole spiel and then, you know, I don't know who clipped it out. and made, I think it was New York Post, actually. They ran the video, and then there was this big outcry over it or whatever. And honestly, I'm not going to lie to you guys. When I first saw that video, my first thought was, I don't even know if this is going to make my show, because I would, like, expect him to say some shit like this. Like, this is already, like, we've already been through seven things that are relatively similar to this, and, like, I don't feel like doing the groundwork and going into the details or whatever. It's like, here's why this is idiotic, et cetera. So I was like, I don't even think I'm going to cover this. But then his reaction to it, to the scandal made me like, oh, now I have to fucking cover this. Because his reaction to it, that statement he released was like, I'm not an anti-Semite, and we need unconditional support of Israel, and definitely no new Iran deal. I was like, you idiot, you were just doing your standard, like, RFK Jr. tap dance, right? This is stuff that I would expect you to say on a Tuesday before lunch. And then, and then somehow you veered the car into the ditch even more, by yeah. acting like, and by the way, I'm also really, really wrong on foreign policy. Definitely don't make peace with Iran. Definitely don't do that. And let Israel get away with ethnic cleansing. That's my real position on this. And I was like, oh, fuck, now I have to cover this. Now now he's making it so I have to. Yeah, yeah. I, I said on the Vanguard that I thought his uh, his uh, apology was actually more offensive than the original comments yeah, themselves. That's right, that's right. Uh, yeah. And also that I have just recorded an interview with the great Rabbi Shmuley, whom the same New York Post just called this month the most famous rabbi in America. Like, oh, just so you know, I am known to hang out with the most famous rabbi in the country. I don't know if you should be calling me anti-Semitic or anything like that. Um, also, yeah, I'm against the Iran deal. That's, you know, so I guess I'm actually worse than Joe Biden in that regard, although you can't give Biden much credit either, but at least he pretended to be in favor of getting back in the Iran deal, right? So yeah, pretty fucking crazy. So let's um so uh, earlier you mentioned something um Gavin that I thought was really interesting. You were talking about definitely voting for Marianne in the Democratic primary, which obviously I fully agree with. And then you were saying in the general definitely voting for Cornell West. So yeah. the point that I've made on my show and kind of the point that uh, I've made over the years even in 2016 and even in uh 2020 even though some people like interpret what I've said differently, my point has always been um if you live in a safe state I, yeah. I think you should vote for, you know, the the Green Party candidate or whichever candidate 100% aligns more with your values. But I actually think it's a much more difficult moral conundrum in a swing state. I actually don't yeah. think it's a very easy question. Like, oh, I'm definitely going to vote for Cornell West. Because at the end of the day, uh, look, it's just the, the ironclad reality that if we don't get rid of first-past-the-post voting, and if we don't implement ranked-choice voting, 
all the third party talk, whether it's libertarian, green, an independent or anybody, it's just, it all comes to not like, it's literally for nothing. It's all just like a fake virtue signal show. And I actually think that sort of like delegitimizes the idea of a third party and a candidate who's not a Democrat or Republican a lot more that we all buy into this charade that there might be something serious going on here. Now, this, by the way, is coming from somebody I voted for Jill Stein in 2012. Um, in 2016, I, of course, voted for Bernie in the primary. And then in the general, I voted for, I think Jill Stein ran again. I think I voted for her again. So I voted for Jill Stein twice. So this is coming from somebody who is literally a Green Party voter. I've probably voted yeah. for more Green Party people than Democrats, or it's like roughly even. Um, but having said that, like, so let me give you my whole spiel on Biden, because I'm from New York. I'm still technically registered to vote in New York, but I might be going to Virginia which is a little bit more of a swing state. It's not as mm -hmm. safe as New York. So then all of a sudden this conundrum pops up again. So when it comes to Biden, I, I got to be honest with you guys, I expected Dickie McGee's acts from him. I expected literally nothing because we're talking about a guy who voted for the Iraq war. We're talking about a guy who voted for the crime bill and wrote part of the crime bill. We're talking about a guy who supported NAFTA and the Patriot Act. And like his his record as a senator is a deeply, deeply conservative Democrat and a corrupt Democrat. So I expected nothing at all. But then when he got into office, like I was genuinely pleasantly surprised to see he did some student loan debt reduction. He did the $1,400 stimulus checks. He said it was going to be $2,000. That was a lie. But we got $1,400, which was half decent. In the Inflation Reduction Act, they overruled the Supreme Court because the Supreme Court said the EPA, the Envi Environmental Protection Agency, is not allowed to do environmental protection. And so... Biden and the Democrats slipped it into the IRA that we're redefining carbon emissions as a pollutant. So now the EPA can regulate it again, basically saving the entire fight against climate change by that one simple procedural trick, which was super based. One of the most base things I've ever seen any Democrat in the modern era do. He raised the minimum wage for uh, federal employees and federal contractors through executive order, which is about 400,000 workers to $15 an hour. I definitely didn't expect him to do that. I didn't expect him to do project labor agreements, which, uh, you know, 200,000 union workers get higher wages as a result of that. I didn't expect him to onshore 200,000 jobs when Trump had offshored hundreds of thousands of jobs. I didn't expect him to do even the mild gun reform that he did, where we have like some funding for red flag laws and we got rid of the boyfriend loophole. So if you have like a domestic abuser boyfriend that you could legally take their guns now if they're a threat. I didn't expect, you know, Katanji Brown-Jackson, I think, is a great Supreme Court justice. She was put on the court. Um, you know, we have the NLRB is genuinely pro-labor. We wouldn't have seen this, this increase in Amazon unionization and Starbucks unionization if it wasn't for that. He pulled out of Afghanistan, which I thought was super based, and then he actually told the media to suck his nuts as he did it when they were, like, flipping <laughs> out over it. And he took a hit in the polls as a result of it because they hit him so yeah. fucking hard on that, and he went down in the polls. But he pulled out and said, no, I'm not going to go back in. Uh, now, we can talk about all the, you know, the, the negative things, like he's fucking starving Afghanistan right now via sanctions. And, you know, he did a drone strike that killed innocents on the way out of Afghanistan. And so I, you know, I could go, I could do the whole spiel. Like, here's the 20 areas where he's wrong. Ripped up the Iran agreement is not getting back into it. You know, um, it didn't lift a finger for the public option or the PRO Act. Gave up on $15 minimum wage mm -hmm. for the whole country. Bombed Syria, sent troops to his mom. Like, I, like, I could give you the pros and the cons. But my point here is, $15 corporate minimum wage, billions of dollars for Made in America Green Jobs, which was part of the IRA, the PACT Act, which gave health care to toxic burn pit victims who are veterans, uh, massively reducing the drone war. And he did all this stuff without a fucking supermajority. Obama had a supermajority and he did like 40% of what Biden was able to do. So I look at that and I go, my, my purity test in 2020 was like, if I was convinced Joe Biden 
would just do a couple of the things that I support. Just like one or two or maybe three at most. Just like if I thought for sure he's going to get me victories on some very three things I like, then I would suck it up and vote for him. And my point back then was, I don't think he's going to fucking do it. Based on his whole career as a senator, I don't think he's going to do it. I think he's super goddamn conservative. But then now I look at it and I go, number one, I actually probably should have voted for him. I didn't. I actually didn't vote in 2020, but I kind of should have voted for him, number one. Number two, if it comes down to Trump versus Biden or DeSantis versus Biden, and I'm in Virginia, I think I would go cast a vote for Biden because for all my the, the issues he has, he has far surpassed my expectations. But now it yeah. complicates it even more because Cornell West is running and I fucking love Cornell West and he's way more in alignment with my politics. So if I was in New York, I probably would still vote for Cornell West and not for Biden. So anyway, tell me your thinking and why you're more or less convinced that it's the right thing to do to go Cornell West. All right. Gotcha. A uh, lot to respond there. Yeah. Sorry um, about that all, spiel. No, no, you're great. That's a, that's a lot of good stuff. So first of all, um, I do live in a safe state. I live in Missouri, which is 100% going to go red. It does every year, um, at least, you know, during my lifetime at one point, not so much. But nowadays, you know, solidly red state. Uh, Joe Biden's not going to win it. In my opinion, it's going to go to the Republicans no matter who I vote for. Um, so I'm going to vote for Cornell West in the general election, despite acknowledging, and I think it is important for us lefties to acknowledge that, yes, Joe Biden is the lesser of two evils, and I would much rather him be president again than Donald Trump be president again. I think it's a a huge red flag of a faux populist when you start hearing people like Jimmy Dore making the argument that actually Trump is the lesser of two evils, and he's less of a fascist. Just to be clear, that that is... of all the things he said, that is by far and away the dumbest shit I've ever Agreed. heard him say. And Agreed. for Sam Cedar to chime in and say, I'll debate him. I was watching that like, <laughs> if he doesn't want to do it, I'll fucking do it. I'll yeah. do it. Because yeah. that shit is, I, are you like, do you have any brain cells left to make that argument? Do you, right. Like, that's the thing I don't like. He's a narrative humper and he's a terminal contrarian. So he has his narrative, which is like, actually, Democrats are the bigger evil. And it's like, <laughs> if you follow the news at all in modern day, you would know for sure that it's factually false. Or you do know that and you're lying because you're a narrative humper and you're sticking yeah. to your narrative no matter what. So anyway, sorry, I interjected and, there to show oh, no, how pissed good. off I was and, over that. And by the way, I think it's okay to uh, to reject the lesser of two evilism idea or that dynamic. If you say... Okay, well, obviously Joe Biden is the lesser of two evils. Correct. Yeah, I don't want exactly. to participate, and That's I'm going to exactly cast a right. protest vote. That's fine, but don't fucking pretend that Trump is the lesser of two evils. That's ridiculous. Um, so yeah, I do live in a safe state, and I would actually take it further than you, Kyle. You said if someone lives in a safe state, then you think it's totally fine to to vote for a third party or Green Party candidate. I would actually go further than that. I would say if you live in a solidly red or solidly blue state and there's a Green Party candidate as good as Cornell West on the ballot, then you almost have no excuse not to vote for right, yeah. that candidate, right? Because if you're living in Missouri or California on the you know flip side of that, then your vote is is meaningless, honestly. And and let's be honest about the presidential election. Unless you live in like one of six or seven states, the vote you cast for president is one of the most meaningless things you're ever going to fucking do. It, because of the electoral college, it doesn't matter, honestly, unless you live in fucking Georgia, right, at this point. So I think that that's, that's something that needs to be 
said, and I wish that more people would understand how meaningless their vote for president is, because if more people employed my logic of, well, if I live in a state that's definitely going to go red or definitely going to go blue, so therefore I might as well just vote for the Green Party. I think if more people realize that, then the Green Party by now would have reached that 5% threshold that is necessary to get federal funding. And that's another reason why I'm very committed to getting Cornell West to 5%. I think that, yes, Ranked choice voting is massively, massively important and that we do need to work on making that a reality before, you know, third party candidates can truly flourish. But I think almost equally important is getting the Green Party to 5% in a national election. That way they can get federal funding and matching funds. Um, that'll make them a much more formidable uh, yeah. force in the next general election. Um, and also, you know, I think that there is definitely a lot to be said about ranked choice voting. Zach and I are huge advocates of it. Um, and I think it's hugely important for the, the third party movement. But if you do look at some previous examples of third party victories, one that Zach and I have studied is Jesse Ventura's uh, uh, election as a third party governor in Minnesota. Um, it actually was him getting on the debate stage that really made a difference in that. He was far, far behind in the polls, uh, losing to the the Republican Norm Coleman and the Democrat Skip Humphrey, who are much more established politicians in the state of Minnesota. He was like far behind them, um, basically just considered like a joke candidate until there was debates. And then Jesse Ventura, through his ability to contrast his populist perspective with the corporate Democrat and the corporate Republican, it immediately changed, basically overnight after that debate. Now, obviously, not everyone is as talented and charismatic as Jesse Ventura, but I would argue that Cornell West comes pretty close. And if we could get a Ross Perot kind of situation where he is able to, you know, crack 10, 15% in a general election poll and get on the debate stage, I think that would be huge. I mean, I think that would be a fucking earthquake. Like so, people would immediately uh, let me, wake up let me and interject. realize this is a, okay, go ahead. Yeah. Let me interject because Ross Perot is actually the example I was going to bring up, which is the, the example of the most successful independent uh, run for president at the national level. Uh, and he got, I believe the number was, I'm actually trying to look it up right now, but I think, I think the number 18 was 18%. Yeah. I thought it was 19. Okay. 18% of it's the It's like 18 and change, but it's not quite 19. But he got zero electoral college votes. And also, it's widely agreed upon among historians that he's like the main reason why Bill, oh, Bill Clinton, Clinton won. was able to win, right? So in a weird way, that sort of makes the resistance liberal argument where it's like, okay, so do you want to hand it over to, to Trump by giving a significant chunk of the vote to a third party candidate who's not going to win and just sort of split the vote of anybody who's center or left of center and just hand all the right wing votes over to one person. Cause obviously Cornell West is on the left. So he's going to take more in theory from, you know, a democratic candidate. So look, my, my point is this, I think we should, if you get rid of first past the post voting and you do rank choice voting and you get it tomorrow, I would literally be like a green party cheerleader. I would become like an evangelist for them. Cause then like it is, then you are by definition, you're serious because even whether or not people believe in the idea of a spoiler or they don't, it almost doesn't matter because it's all about the perception of people that there is a spoiler effect, right? And that's real, that people have a perception of it, even if it's true or not. And so, but if you do rank choice voting, get rid of first past post voting, then that's, you immediately get rid of any uh, objection to having an independent candidate or a third party candidate. And then I genuinely think overnight, the Green Party becomes more viable. The Libertarian Party becomes more viable. You could come up with some new party. You could run as an independent and that would become more viable. So I guess my frustration is I always it, like in this discussion, everybody 
always puts the cart before the horse. And I autistically am like, why? But why are you putting the cart before the horse? Like, do the do it the other way. And then, like, I'm, I'm there with you. But when you don't do it, it makes me feel like it's sort of delusional in a sense. Well, can I can I take a crack at that one, Kyle? Yeah, go ahead. Go ahead. I think that I think that what it is, and and this would be my pushback, right? It's just that, it, and maybe you have a different experience. I wonder if it's a, a little bit of, if more people are plugged in in the DC area. But I feel like the reason that a lot of people put so much pressure on the uh, every you know the four year cycle, I mean, of presidency, is it's because that's when you get people's eye on the ball, you know. And and I I do understand that you're playing with fire when you're dealing with a. <laughs> third party candidate and you're facing a guy like Donald Trump. But I, I think that the worry is, is that it would be infinitely more difficult because of how stressed out everybody is, because of how spread thin everybody is, and because the media machine already trains everybody and is incentivized to keep their eyes on the horse race uh, because that's a profitable mechanism. I think a lot of people just uh, feel like it can be harnessed uh, to get a third party off of the ground in a way that it might not be able to be harnessed to get something like ranked choice voting off the ground. Uh, and I think that, the you know, uh, as a YouTuber, obviously, we're completely jaded, right? But if you look at our, you know, like Gavin one time, he spent like, I don't know, a 12 hours in his room cutting this like, you know, super in-depth like video essay about why ranked choice voting in Maine was super important and everybody should take a look at it because this was like 2020 it was a hot button issue uh, and it got like 86 views uh you know you start making clips about you know the horse race electoral politics uh, you get a lot more engagement so i just think that's why people uh you know decide to put the cart before the horse is because otherwise you know that horse might not move so i also just think people I, I are sick and tired of waiting but sorry, that's more ahead. of a I, and i mean i hear you but that's more like the point that i'm making to do those things it's more of like a procedural and administrative type argument, not that it needs to be this big public show. We're going to get ranked choice voting and we're going to get rid of first past post voting. It's more of like, and this is where like knowing how to play politics really works. If you get people who are experts at this stuff and basically insider lobbyists at this stuff and you can get them to talk to the right people, give the right campaign contribution. It's sort of like how uh, with Wolfpack and, and um, you know, Jank and he started the whole thing, let's get money out of politics or whatever, and they're trying to get a, a constitutional convention, and they certainly hit a brick wall, but they got, like, I don't know how many states it was, I'm just guessing, it were like 10 or 12 states or something like that, to actually pass at the state level a call for a constitutional convention to get money out of politics. Now, why was that the case? Because they were able to, like, they hired people who knew what they were doing, they knew what strings to pull, they knew who to talk to, and I think that and because to do ranked choice voting and getting rid of first pass voting, you could do it at, on a state by state uh, basis. And so I think like you actually can get that done. And by the way, Andrew Yang, for my many flaws, uh, for the many flaws he has, my many disagreements with him, when he started uh, his forward party or whatever, one of their main things was like, we want to get ranked choice voting everywhere. And like right. my counter argument to him was like, you should make that like your only thing like this should be a single issue attempt and not even necessarily a political party but like i guess my point is the i don't think it's possible until you get rid of first past the post voting and you get ranked choice voting so i just wish people were a little more serious about the steps to get this stuff accomplished and i, I just i don't really see that happening but i will say i do sort of co-sign the idea that um you know in 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 safe states in particular I, it is a good, like, I, I think you should sort of cast right. the, the moral vote and the virtuous vote. I sort of agree with Gavin on that point. I just don't want to give people false hope about it in the sense that I'm like, 
hey, with, with you doing uh, this, it's going to like usher in the revolution because it's not. It's like until we get rid of those structural things in the way, I kind of view it as my final point. That I'll let you guys talk. I kind of view it as self disenfranchisement, right? Like Cornell West is running in the Green Party or it was the People's Party. And thankfully, he listened to his critics and went to the Green Party. That was a good move. Yeah, free tweet. But like, but like he would be polling way higher if he ran as a Democrat. And I think everybody knows that, right? Like when Jill Stein ran, what she actually had a good run compared to other third party runs. And one time she got what, like 3% or something like that, yeah. which again is good for a green party candidate. Whereas Bernie Sanders got like 45% of the vote. And he's basically like a green party candidate who's running from within the democratic party. You know what I'm saying? So however rigged people think it is, by the DNC against progressives. And by the way, there are a lot of structural hurdles hurdles there, and they do try to put their thumb on the scale, and they do influence it in a negative direction. But however rigged that is, it's like 10 times more rigged the third-party way, and that's why I get frustrated. And honestly, I blame myself a little bit because I was, you know, I, I view politics in a very, like, principled morality, what's the right way to do it kind of way. And I, I sort of let that cloud my logical judgment in terms of how to actually win and actually get W's on the board. And so I sort of fed into this hysteria of like the third party stuff. And you have these people who have become totally nihilistic and they'd rather right. like, you know, you hear people say like, I, I don't want to do like doing nothing is actually morally superior. And it's like, <laughs> no, that's <laughs> not the, accurate. Yeah. Yeah. yeah anyway, the accelerationists and all that stuff. A hundred percent. And to be honest, um, you talk about the false hope that the Green Party represents. Yes, are there a couple like terminally online people that think that like voting for Cornell West 2024 is going to usher in the revolution and be the end of the duopoly? Like, yeah, I'm sure there's a couple of those people out there. I think, however, that the vast majority of people that vote green in any election, myself included, do recognize it at this point to be a protest vote um, with like the, the most hope being getting that candidate to 5%. I, I think that most people do recognize that. And I don't say protest vote to like demean the idea of third party voting because I also have only ever voted for Green Party candidates. I've only been eligible to vote in two presidential elections, 2016 and 2020. I voted for the Greens in both those elections. So I'm definitely not above casting a protest vote. I mean, I fucking love to protest. So why not cast a protest vote? Like I said, casting a vote for president is already meaningless if you live in the state that I live in. So might as well cast a protest vote and you know sign off on a candidate that actually more aligns with my values. Um, as far as the ranked choice voting thing, I'm 100% for ranked choice voting, and I completely agree with you, Kyle, that it would make the third-party movement so much stronger, so much more viable. Um, the only question I'd have for you is: is your uh, is your philosophy on that? Like, basically, until every single state has ranked choice voting, it's really not even worth engaging in the third-party uh, movement or battle. Well, no, um, no. Because like I said, I voted for about the same number of third party candidates right. as I have Democrats in my life. And like I said, if you're in a safe state, I, I kind of I, I do kind of agree that it makes it makes sense to vote for the for the Green Party, for sure. Vote for a, a better candidate than a Democrat, for sure. Um, but I guess the reason why I always bring that up and almost to the point of like autistically bringing it up is that I, nobody brings up that point in the discussion and it's like so people seem to be deluding themselves into thinking like this is possible while still having first past the post voting and not having ranked choice voting and i'm mm -hmm. sitting there like it's literally just not possible can we stop pretending here like it's like we're all agreeing to play make-believe and that that's okay, the would, thing would, that frustrates me 
I would also sign off on the fact that I don't think either Gavin and I, yeah, I, I would never argue that like Cornell West has a chance to become president, unfortunately, because of the reasons that you listed. Um, but I just think that because he's superior in basically every measurable metric um, that, you know, it's worthwhile to, you know, try and get him above 5%. I think it would be absolutely insane if he ever did uh, perform as well as Ross Perot. Uh, I think that would be such a slap in the face to the Democratic Party that they might actually have to get their act together. Um, you know, clearly they did not nah, learn They'll anything. just demonize him. They'll just demonize him more. <laughs> that's what will yeah, happen. That, I mean, maybe that's true. I don't know. It, it, it's honestly, it's so fucked because I, I agree with you, Kyle, right? But I feel like that's kind of like, that's why we're like kind of in between a rock and a hard place. But it, it, so if Cornell were to run as a Democrat, do you think he has a chance to win? The primary? Uh, ooh. I mean, I think that at most that he had, he would have a good chance of actually forcing them to debate. I think he would have a ch- he would actually have a chance to win if it was if he was in the so? Democratic primary. Yeah, but I, I will add this caveat because I think it's sort of important that it would have to be like just Biden versus Cornell West. Right. I think once you start complicating the field and you have Marianne and Cornell, which is like you know they're similar ideology, and then you throw in RFK, who's a psycho, but nonetheless he's still going to take some number right. of votes. Then it gets more complicated. But if it was one v one, yeah, you definitely have a much better chance, especially because he's such a phenomenal orator. He's so charismatic that you yeah. become more undeniable. And Jacobin wrote a somebody for Jacobin wrote a piece recently that was just like basically Cornell West should run should have ran as a Democrat, yeah. and like if people were dunking on it, and I was like. Why? Like, why are you? They're right. Like, he'd have a much better chance if he did that. I, I would say not only would he have a much better chance if he did that, but he'd also have a much better chance as a third party candidate as well if he did that and then did like the dirty break strategy in the event he lost. And I don't know how you feel about that, Kyle, but we've talked about it a bit on our show. The dirty break strategy is when you run as a progressive or a lefty in the Democratic primary. And then if they treat you unfairly, if they don't sanction debates, um, then after losing the nomination and you know after Joe Biden gets coronated as the nominee, then you say, no, I'm actually going to continue running for president just now as a third party candidate. This is what the Green Party wanted Bernie Sanders to do in 2016. You might remember after Bernie Sanders lost the nomination to Hillary Clinton, Jill Stein, who was the Green Party nominee, basically invited him onto the ticket and said, hey, come take over the ticket. I'll be VP. You can lead the Green Party ticket and continue your political revolution this way. Obviously, Bernie Sanders did not choose to go that route um, for reasons that I understand, by the way, but he did not choose to go that route. Um, I think, however, that a similar strategy could really be successful for successful for someone like Cornell West because the problem with him just running as a Green Party candidate is that the Green Party primary doesn't even end for like almost a year. So he's missing out some of the time. He's still able to go on the news and campaign. Don't get me wrong. But I think if he was participating in a Democratic primary for the next year, then that would give him a lot more attention that he could then capitalize on and build a serious movement and have real momentum as a Green Party candidate in the general election um, after already kind of building that momentum as a Democratic Party candidate. And plus, that would literally give him a shot at actually winning the Democratic nomination, too. Um, But I kind of doubt that would happen just because I know they would treat him unfairly, rig it, refuse to do debates, stuff like that. Exactly. Yeah, I mean, one point that my mind keeps coming back to also in this conversation is that we need to break this fever that Democrats have of like, normie Democratic voters, like sort of trusting mainstream media and like being cool with Democratic leaders and not seeing their flaws, because that is definitely a difference between the Democratic base and the Republican base. The Republican base hates the media. They assume the media is lying and full of shit. 
And the only one they trust is Trump. They don't even trust, you know, the Mitch McConnell's and the other like Republican right. leaders, right? And on the yeah, Democratic side, the right wingers like trust random people on YouTube and Democrats don't. Yeah, and right on the Democratic side, there is this very like sort of default respect for authority, and they think that there's some sort of merit to like right. Nancy Pelosi being where she is, and it's like right. no, she's just the most corrupt, which is why she got to be the Democratic leader. You yeah. know what I mean? Right. They're in love and with so, the pageantry. Yeah. Yeah. And, and yeah. And they play the civility game where they think like you need like it used to be when I was a kid, it was the opposite that Republicans were very like, whose turn is it now to be president? What Republican is running that like, oh, Bob Dole, it's Bob Dole's turn. Let's vote for him, even though he has no personality whatsoever. But it was very like, oh, okay. this is what we're supposed to do. <laughs> but with right. Democrats, they're now they're doing like this is what we're supposed to. Oh, VP Biden is running. Well, he was the vice president to Obama. I guess we'll vote for him, even though he can't complete a fucking sentence. And it's yep. like we got to sort of break that somehow. And it's just so I don't know how to do that. Like I'm, I'm trying, 100%. but I don't know how to do that. We need to make them more distrustful of these lying authority figures who are not at all authority figures and make them really be more open to the idea of a political revolution. The idea that, hey, the whole system's fucking rigged and it's corrupt. And Bernie came up and pointed it out, pointed it out and said, I got the solutions. Follow me. And like. He almost got over the edge, but he didn't. And we just, we got to get to that point, which is super difficult yeah. to do. I totally agree. And you kind of saw that happen in 2016 when the establishment Republicans came out on Fox News and tried to stop Trump from happening. When Mitt Romney came out there, you know, and, and was like, as a previous nominee, I, you know, beg of you to not elect this man, our party's figure, like this is beneath us as a party. That made the Republicans like Trump more. Like they, they, they wanted to vote for him even more after they were told not to. Um, on the Democratic side, when MSNBC comes out and starts fear-mongering about how Bernie Sanders is too radical and how he's going to lose to Trump, well, most of the audience fell in line, unfortunately. So I think that illustrates the exact dynamic you're talking about. And I, I, that goes back to what I was saying earlier about how that's or why you see more of an independent online right wing media sphere, I think, than you do left wing, just because, yeah, more liberals, more people that vote Democrat are more likely to want to get their news from a quote unquote serious establishment source um, versus a lot of the right wing base is honestly more interested in hearing just normal people give their opinions. And, and I'm not I'm not trying to be like classist and, and say like, oh, Republicans just fucking listen to any old random person online. I actually like this quality about the Republican party base. It's my favorite thing about them. And I do wish that we would see more of that on our side, more distrust of the establishment media, more distrust of the establishment candidates and an embrace of populist outsiders. Yeah, yeah it's like... And I think that uh, this is kind of the problem for the Democrats, right? It's the snake eating its own tail. And this is something I really wanted to get your take on, Kyle, right? We, obviously, we've got some big news about how the Justice Democrats uh, you know, have been kind of performing in this uh, cycle as far as fundraising goes and staffing. But, but it, you know, we talk about how the Democratic voters and the base that we have to reach, right? There's no two ways about it. You cannot run an outsider uh, candidacy without the Democratic Party base. This is something that Bernie Sanders understood uh, through all his faults, right? Uh, you You have to be able to reach those voters because they make up so much of the pie that you have to have to win. And those people really value credibility, right? They do not like it if you come out and you haven't had any experience, right? Uh, their favorite thing to hammer Trump for was the fact that he had no experience for the job, right? They were like, would you let a doctor do surgery on you if they had no medical degree? Would you be represented by a lawyer that, you know, didn't go to law school, etc.? That was like their favorite burn on the guy, uh, which as Gavin just pointed out, the Republicans did not care at all about, but the Democrats did. So what did we do as, you know, progressives who want to earn those Democrats voters, but 
also changed their perception of what's possible through politics. We were like, let's knock down the house. 2018, you were, you know, one of the uh, one of the chief uh, thought leaders on that, Kyle. You know, let's get people like AOC. Let's get let's get people like Cory Bush uh, into the halls of Congress, and and let's let them, you know, earn the respectability of the mainstream Democrats while they still respect us. You can't deny uh, their credentials. They've been serving, you know, in Congress. They've cast votes on, you know, X and Y issues. They've you know, put their foot down. They protested outside Nancy Pelosi's office, whatever, right? These are credentialed people. But what happened? They were swallowed up by the swamp, right? The snake ate its own tail. And now through the process of getting them to the point where they were now respected and taken seriously, um, you know, now they no longer are interested in representing the people. They're far more interested in, you know, getting reelected. They're far more caught in the monotony. And I'm not even saying that this is like a character weakness uh, per se. It's the design. It's the mechanism of the system. Um, so I would just, you know, be curious what your thoughts are. Like, what's the next strategy? Like, what's the next, uh, what's the next curveball to throw to try and, you know, break this up? I mean, first, first, let's diagnose what the problem is, which is, so when we started Justice Democrats, we did, a, a lot of the vetting was around policy stuff, because we're policy people. We have a clear idea of, uh, you know, what we want implemented, and we feel like it represents the American people. We want Medicare for all. We want free college. We want a living wage. We want stronger unions. We want to end the wars. Like the li We know what we want. And so when we did Justice Democrats, we vetted a lot for, are you with us on the policies? Are you with us on the policies? And uh, if, if somebody was and they passed that test, then it's like, OK, you'll be the person. Right. And in the case of, like, say, Paula Jean Swearingen in West Virginia, good person, but just wasn't a, a dynamic enough politician to win. Didn't even come close. Right. And so there's other factors that are important, too. I mean, charisma is one just in terms of, like, can you get people to give a shit about what you're saying? And can you get people to want to cast a ballot for you? And, you know, charisma is not all that common. But the most important thing that we were missing was, and, and it's hard to test for this. In fact, I, I don't even know how we can, but it's leadership qualities. Like, do you have somebody who's not only correct on the policies and charismatic and likable, but they're leaders and they know when to draw a line in the sand and say, fuck you, no. Right? And that's, I feel like, the biggest hurdle when it comes to justice democrats and that's one of the reasons to your point they had to lay off like half half their staff they're not doing all that hot and it's like well uh you guys decided at some point that it makes more sense to go along to get along and play the game from within and try to like get concessions by politicking behind the scenes and you know what you lost the main thing you had, which got you popular in the first place, was that you're an outsider with your microphone, the bully pulpit. Look how many followers AOC has on Twitter, right? She could get thousands of people in the streets just by saying, hey, we're going to fight on this particular issue. Come join me, right? And right. she doesn't do it because she doesn't want to do it because she has because she feels like, oh, I can get more concessions from within playing the game. Well, not only did you not get the concessions, now the founding group is sort of dwindling away into irrelevance and nothingness because you're acting more like insiders. Now, yep. I'll add the caveat, which I think is important, which you know many people overlook, which I think is unfair, which is, look, they are still sort of by a wide margin the closest we have to allies in there. For example, look at the Israel vote that just happened, what was it, yesterday or two days ago? There were like nine votes um, against the resolution. The resolution was like, Israel isn't racist and is not an apartheid state, and we love them. That was like the resolution. 
And it was like mostly justice Democrats who were like, fuck you, it is an apartheid state. We're not voting for this, right? And so they're still better in some clear ways. And I think it's important to point that out. But right. it's very the scope is limited. They don't fight as much as we wanted them to fight. They don't show the leadership qualities. They're not harnessing that outsider energy anymore because they're really not outsiders anymore. And then it's like, of course, it's going to, you know, atrophy and and become nothing. Yep. So, you know, yep. what's my answer as to how to fix this? I mean, I I'm not exactly a genius here, but I would say you actually need to find people who are correct on the policies, not corrupted, charismatic, and also have leadership qualities where they're willing yep. to take on a fight. You know, like I've seen no really good strategy. Anything that was good that Biden did, and he did, did do some good things, it's because Biden was sort of okay with doing these certain good things. He wasn't like yeah. pushed to these things. You know but what I mean? But that's the thing, right, Kyle? Like, I mean, I would argue that you guys had one, I mean, and, and I'm biased, right? We're, we're Missouri boys, proud and loud, right? Uh, we were so stoked. One of the first guests we ever got on our podcast when we had like 13 subscribers, guys, was Corey Bush. And she, this was in uh, the second time she'd run. So this was 2020. She lost the first time around because she was running against a political dynasty in St. Louis for people who didn't follow that race. But anyway, uh, she had a, a, she was running again. Um, and, and she came on and she chatted with us and she was, she was such a powerful leader in Ferguson. She, she had so much clout, uh, and she was, and she was such a force when you heard her talk and, and, and she told us to our face, she was like, uh, there's not a day that I will not be getting in front of every camera. Uh, that you know will have me that I will not sit in front of every media show because the people in my district have needs that are not being met and I'm going to fight for them. And I, I can't imagine, I can't picture a vetting process where I am sitting across from Corey Bush and she is lighting a fire under my ass and I'm so inspired. Uh, and then I'm and then I, but I watch how you know her and, and yeah, you're right. She did. She cast a base vote on in Israel. She was one of I think nine Congress people, along with people like AOC, Jamal Bowman, and you know Rashida other familiar Tlaib. faces. Tlaib uh, leaned into it. Yeah, Talib, Ilhan Omar. I think yeah. Ayanna Presley voted for it. So there, there was a lot of good there. I'm not, I'm not diminishing um, that. But do you kind of see what I'm saying? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Look, here's. Let me add one more criticism to them, because this is one I think people don't bring up nearly enough, which is man. They got lost down that identity politics rabbit hole super fucking quickly. You know, mm -hmm. where a AOC was doing an Instagram live thing where she was like, you know, people need to use Latinx or something. And it's like, what? <laughs> yeah. You're I saw a congressperson and this yeah. is what you're talking about? Really? Even, yeah. look, even the arguments that were in service of the correct position on the Israel vote, a lot of the language around it was like, you're just trying to shut up a woman of color. Yep. And it's like, no, that's not the response, because if I said the same shit that Pramila Jayapal said, they would still bring up that resolution. It's got nothing to do with the identity of Pramila Jayapal at all. It has to do with their serving the Israel lobby, and so yep. they're sucking them off to try to get more campaign contributions, and they're saying, Israel's not racist, Israel's not apartheid. So even in service of the right position, they get lost in the identity politics world, which is never going to fucking work to make you popular and to make you a viable candidate on the national stage. Who is the Democratic president right now? Literally the least woke Democrat left in the country, no. Joe fucking Biden. He probably dropped a slur before lunch, okay? <laughs> and so, listen, honestly, but I'm going to give you a little cherry of, uh, on top of, uh, of hope here because I actually believe this to my core. Look at what they're doing in Minnesota right now. Tim Waltz, the governor of Minnesota, is fucking based as shit, man. You know, I, I covered on, on my channel a while ago. It was such a, an amazing story that I literally did like a weekend segment just talking into an iPhone. So I was like, I got to talk about this right now. 
They got free school lunch and free school breakfast for everybody in a universal sense. They, there was like 10 things on the list that were just like mega based that I was like, this guy's the fucking man. And he also was fighting as he was doing it. So anyway, my point here is what seems to me to be the hope for the future more is those Midwestern Democrats who mm. understand what issues are like, hey, I ain't touching that. That's nuanced. I got no interest in it versus they're all in on the economic populism. And let me tell you something that is going to win elections and it's going to win elections easily because people look at you as oh that's the serious person who just raised my wages i like them right and that's not saying that's not me saying give up on the social issues because social issues right. are super important and the drug war you know we see the assault that's happening right now on the lgbtq community we see the assault that's happening on abortion rights so i'm definitely not saying disarm on social issues in fact you better play good defense and you better protect the lgbtq community you better protect abortion rights but where they put the emphasis is on the broad things that gets everybody to love them and vote for them. And so that, I think Tim Waltz in Minnesota, a lot of these Midwestern Democrats are really the ones who are leading the way. I mean, look at, you know, Sherrod Brown. He's not nearly as good as Tim Waltz is, but he's uh, like a very pro-union Democratic senator in Ohio. Ohio has been going mega red for like three or four election cycles, and Sherrod Brown still wins comfortably over there, right? Right. So that's where it's at. Yeah. Yeah, totally. And by the way, speaking of Tim Waltz, the governor of Minnesota, earlier in the show, I mentioned Jesse Ventura. Actually, did you know that Jesse Ventura broke his long uh, running tradition of only or not endorsing duopoly candidates in order to actually endorse Governor Tim Waltz for his most recent yeah, run? Because he's based. He's yeah, based. he's based. He's in favor of legal cannabis. He has all these great policies. And Ventura was like, you know, I actually feel like it is worth endorsing a Democrat despite, you know, going my entire political career preaching against Democrats and Republicans. Um, so yeah, that that definitely caught my eye. And I have been paying attention to some of what Tim Waltz is doing. I think he's a really, really good governor and a, and a great model for how to run in a state like Minnesota, which obviously is not, you know, California or New York. I tend to agree with that analysis, Kyle. Going back to Justice Democrats real quick, there's one point I wanted to make about their strategy and I think why so much of the support for them has atrophied. Um, so they were honestly just coattail riders, in my opinion, in large part of the Bernie Sanders movement. And, and the reason I say that is because they were betting on Bernie Sanders winning the nomination. And when that didn't happen, they took it as an excuse to give up and go home and, and stop fighting. When, in my opinion, and I've said this a million times on the Vanguard, Bernie Sanders losing the nomination to Joe Biden was not an excuse to stop fighting and stop aggressively resisting the Democratic establishment. That was when the fight actually really got real. That's when you need to double down. That's when you need to get five times more aggressive against the Democratic establishment and say, okay, well, if you're going to put up this fucking guy, then I'm going to have to be the most aggressive left flank thorn in your motherfucking side for the next four years. And they've chosen the exact opposite path. Um, honestly, it, it's it's crazy to me that they you know, cosplayed as these revolutionaries but then when their candidate lost and the establishment won one, that's when you give up? Like, no, that's when you actually start fighting, right? Yeah. you agree with that? Absolutely. And Bernie is actually fighting Biden more, even though he's Way personally more. friends with Biden than a lot of these yeah. other ones are. A good example of that is he's holding up some nomination for some position. I'm blanking on what position it is until Biden lowers uh, prescription drug prices, which Biden has the authority to do on his own under the Biden yep. Act, because under that act, anything that like the that taxpayer money, government money goes towards the research and development of these drugs. So any drug created with that kind of money, you can lower it 
on your own. You have the authority to do it. Basically, price controls from the executive branch because we've invested so much taxpayer money into this. And so Bernie's actually fighting him on that. And I look at that and I'm like, first of all, thank you, based Bernie. I really appreciate that, that you're actually standing up and fighting on this issue. But beyond that, it's like, well, why isn't every single, forget the Justice Democrats, why isn't every single Congressional Progressive Caucus member causing a stink about this, raising a stink about this? Biden, he would feel like his hand is forced if every single Congressional Progressive Caucus member was involved in a press conference and went on the Sunday shows and said, we're going to stand up to President Biden on this because he has the authority and he's not going to do it. And it's like, this is what we need. This is what we need. But we're not seeing enough of it. And that's why people feel uh, dejected and they feel let down. And, you know, it just it is what it is at this point. Yeah. But I just I can't again just not to beat a dead horse. But if it's not if not somebody like Corey Bush, like who? Who is it going to be? How do we find that person? And is it not just a power structure issue? Is it not just an issue where, hey, once you get into the walls of, you know, into the you know halls of Congress or whatever you want to say, you're just, you know, you're, yeah, you're, you know, that, you're, you're taken out that I flirted with that analysis from time to time. But fundamentally, I don't believe it, because if you look at Tim Waltz, he's a great counterexample. It's like, you know, five but he's years not ago, in Congress. He's in his own. He's in his own uh, governorship. And I feel like we've seen more renegade governors in our time. And that, that goes for good and bad governors. Right. And everything in between. You've got Tim Waltz. Uh, but you also have um, the my childhood governor, uh, Sam Brownback, Gavin and I. Uh, you know, uh, have uh, many a stories to tell about, about that guy. That guy, you know, uh, was a Republican, but he was on just like scorched earth. He literally bankrupted the entire state. Um, you know what I mean? It's easier so, to, I feel like, go on your own path if you're a governor. We, where have I we seen that so much? I you think know? you're right. I think you're right that it's easier at the state level, particularly because there's not as much corrupting money at the state level, for example. There's not as much of a coherent party state structure that can sort of get in your way. But I don't agree with the idea that it's like just impossible because there's always been renegades. I mean, Ron Paul's a renegade on the Republican side. He's super libertarian. He's principled. He's ideological. He has his philosophy and he votes in accordance with that. Bernie Sanders, there was a reason why. I remember when Hillary was like, this guy, nobody even likes this guy. He has no friends in Washington. And our reaction was like, that's based. We don't want him to have any friends in Washington. We want him because he's out there and he's casting the proper votes and he's fighting for it. He was called the Amendment King because he always slipped in these based things to pieces of legislation that were totally unrelated because he felt like this is the only way I can win is if I do it this way. So there's Bernie, there's uh, Ron Paul. I'm sure there's some examples today. I'm sure, you know, there's 10, 20 different examples of people who have their particular pet issue where they've fought on it and won that I'm just unfamiliar with at the moment. I don't think it's impossible, but I agree with you that it is harder at the national level, particularly because of the corrupting influence of all that money, but also because the party structure is very ossified and you have your leaders like the Nancy Pelosi's and the Mitch McConnell's on the Republican side and, you know, the Joe Biden's or whatever. And like people feel like there's a real authority structure here. And so I'm going to like I'm going to go along to get along and fit in where I can and try to like play ball the nice way. Right. So I think it's harder. I don't think it's impossible, though. I think that once people really start believing it truly is impossible to make the change. That's when they go full nihilistic, full doomerist. And that's something I've been fighting against a lot lately because, you know, the left really needs to sort of get its shit together and be more clear eyed as opposed to just sulking endlessly. Because it is true that ever since Bernie Sanders campaign went down, like it's just been everybody's been a mess. It's like a ragtag group of maladjusted yeah. weirdos who are like, yeah, <laughs> who everybody has a different idea. You hate to... each other. You're slitting each other's throats, et cetera. 
Right. And and like I said, they took Biden's victory over Bernie as an excuse to give up, not to double down and fight harder, which is obviously what's called for if the leader of the party is Joe Biden and not a progressive. So I think that's uh, just totally, totally insane. Um, also, as far as the congressional uh, example, you know, Zach, we obviously have the uh, example of the of the Tea Party, right? That's what a lot of people wanted the Justice Democrats to kind of do and and kind of act like being an actual left flank, just like how the Tea Party seriously was like the right flank in the Republican Party, and they held up legislation. They really were a thorn yeah, in the side the of corporatists. Let, let me just point out, they didn't hate the Tea Party like they would hate leftists, though. Corporatists love Tea Parties because they're all about you know tax cuts or whatever. I think it's a totally different ballgame when you start talking about things like you know socializing medicine, you know Green New Deal, nationalizing industries, those kinds of deals. But let me just point out that, like, my biggest issue with a lot of these people is strategy. Their biggest problem is strategy and going along to get along. Like, they still cuck themselves. Like, just to give one example, like, $15 minimum wage actually passed through the House of Representatives. It passed. And everybody who we wanted to vote for it voted for it. So, like, they're right, but it's just they don't know how to pull the strings the right way and go about it to get it so it actually becomes law. Right, which is why we get I something they, like no, the IRA. I just don't think they want to stick their necks out for it. No, you th- you seriously believe that like AOC knows how to fight? I don't think she knows how to fight. I think she. Yes, dude. Want- what are you talking about, bro? I guarantee you, Kyle. Come on. L- listen, you remember those clips that we used to see of her going viral in 2018 when she was calling out Joe Crowley? Do you remember those and how like it would like fill you with joy? Do you remember that moment when we had so much hope for the progressive movement that we were like, wow. Look at what Bernie Sanders inspired, right? Like, I, I do believe that she knows how to fight. I, I remember and we she, I she crashed up earlier. Nancy Pelosi's remember office. She, yeah, she exactly, went in there. Dude, I remember she that. stood out there. We were like, hell fucking yes, this lady is a badass. Like, I'll lay in front of a train for this woman. Like, she's the best thing that's ever happened to the but movement. The she knows is, how to fight. The dude, difference she's got is, teeth. that's the activist portion of it, which she knows how to do. I'm saying the procedural side of it, she has no idea how to do. No. Oh, fair. And I, fair. Think, I think it's a mix of like we've been talking about this whole time, sort of going along to get along. I'll make more change if I'm friendly with Biden and all this stuff. I think it's a mix of that with just no idea how to procedurally get these things done, which, look, there's a grace period, right? Like, I'll, I'll grant you six months of not like, fuck, I ran into a brick wall. How do I fix this? But if you don't come up with some coherent sort of strategy that at least has a prayer of working in a year, two years, whatever, then then I start to go, God damn it. Like, we, you know, we bet on the wrong horse here. I'd much rather right. have Tim Walton Congress. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And there's the procedural procedural side. And then there's also knowing how to use like your celebrity and your power as someone with a large Twitter following, as you mentioned, someone that is granted access to mainstream media spaces and given a huge, huge microphone to the American people. And, and frankly, the Justice Democrats just don't act like the left flank that they should in that way either. They're not. Yeah, they're not the left Joe party. They're not. Um, they're when, just not the AOC, left party. Right. When AOC recently went on Pod Save America to endorse Joe Biden, I said, you know, if you're going to endorse this guy, like I get why you feel like you have to do that and why you're not, you know, voting or endorsing like Marianne Williamson or Cornell West or whatever I would like you to do. I get why you have to do that. But what bothered me about it, and this is what bothers me about their attitude at large towards the establishment, is that in the process of endorsing him, she had to gaslight us in the process and act like, oh, yeah, well, he's actually done such a great job. Um, She couldn't just say, well, you know, unfortunately, I do think he's better than Donald Trump. Therefore, I'm going to cast a vote for him. She had to act like somehow he was actually adequate 
for a progressive movement. Like he was a a president that de deserved the approval of the progressive movement, which is the exact opposite of how a left flank should act. Even if Joe Biden does deserve credit on some stuff, yeah, give him credit for that. Um, but don't stop talking about the fact that he still hasn't federally legalized cannabis. He still hasn't freed nonviolent drug offenders. He hasn't even talked about a public option since becoming president, which he literally campaigned on. Like, why is she not bringing this stuff up every time she has a platform, every time she has yeah. a microphone? Because if you can't be effective procedurally and you're not going to fight in that way, well, that's, in my opinion, basically the only utility you do have is to be a loud and proud, aggressive progressive going on mainstream platforms and making the case for a progressive agenda and pointing out the failures of Joe Biden. AOC has a huge Twitter following. She at least was really popular and in touch with the youth. I don't know, maybe she squandered that by now, but I think it would be meaningful and it would pierce a lot of people's kind of bubbles that have been uh, formed by mainstream media propaganda and they would start realizing, oh yeah, why hasn't Joe Biden done that thing? He did say he would, uh, you know, uh, reschedule cannabis. What happened to that? Why hasn't he done that? Yeah, yeah we, all of we debated Ro Khanna on this. We we interviewed Ro Khanna. I think it was last Great week. Great discussion. And yeah. we, um, you know, the point that Crystal and I landed on is like, look, we're not naive. You know, we're not stupid. I get how it works once you're inside the belly of the beast. I think everybody to some extent intuitively understands, oh, it's different once you're in the belly of the beast. We all get that. But you couldn't even bring yourself to a point where you stay out, where you right. just don't say anything. You think Joe Biden is waking up and scrolling the news every morning? I sure hope Ro Khanna endorsed me today, right? <laughs> it's like, no, you could have just said nothing. If you said nothing, that would have been a million times better than endorsing Joe Biden this early when he has, a, there is a candidate running who 95% of her platform is like Bernie Sanders. And then in some other areas, she might even be better than him. And you and you supported Bernie, knowing he's way better than Biden. And now all of a sudden, it's you jump, hop on the bandwagon for Joe Biden. So it's just, look, that it's, it's inexcusable. It just goes to show you, you're always going to need outsiders. You're always going to need activists. You're always going to need basically to try to hold these people accountable. But an ideal scenario would be, you know, when we get somebody who you feel like, no, they're actually on our team and they're actually fighting for the things that we want and the things that we believe in, because that's when you see a real unified left and you all understand, okay, the common enemy is the right and we're all on the good side, you're the left. It would be a lot nicer and the world would be a lot simpler if we could get back to that sort of narrative where we feel like, again, I hate to keep bringing him up, uh, I mean, I don't really because I, I kind of love this guy, but Tim Waltz is a great <laughs> example of it. When I, when, like, I know that dude is doing base things and his heart is in the right place. And so now I'm playing defense for you like a pit bull dog. If anybody comes for you, I'm going to cover them 10 times harder, right? I would like to be in that position with a lot of these congressional Same. progressives, but we're Same. just not there. And, it's, and obviously it's very frustrating. And and yeah, and I, I have no problem simping for a, a genuinely progressive yeah, president. Right. I was a yep. huge Bernie bro. People sometimes say I'm a little bit too uh, fawning about Marianne Williamson, but I'm like, I think she's doing something that's really important. I, you know, told her yeah, thank she's you earned to it. her face. When, when I met her in person, I said, thank you for what you're doing. It is really important. No other progressive is stepping up to the plate to challenge Joe Biden in this way. Unfortunately, I was hoping that someone like Bernie Sanders would take another crack at it. You're the only one that had the balls to fucking do it. So I genuinely thank you for doing that. Um, if that makes me a simp, then you can call me a simp. But she has my politics. She supports the same agenda that I do. Um, and I'm I'm more than proud to support someone like yeah. that. And, and like I said, right. I was the same way about Bernie Sanders. Like, I remember Bernie Sanders was literally a fucking rock star among progressive media hosts. I remember when he did an interview on TYT in the studio back in 2016, he walked in. Every single employee at TYT, including all the hosts, got up and applauded. Like, yeah, 
it's okay to like you 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 get that kind of uh, enthusiasm if you actually fight for the people. Not like, well, only yeah. is it okay, it was the bedrock of our entire like YouTube sphere, guys. Yep. Like, mm -hmm. no, Kyle, when in your entire life have you come out here and been like, I'm an objective news host and I have absolutely none of my own politics. I'm the Walter Cronkite of YouTube. Nobody has ever done that. That's not why we exist. We, you know, uh, you know, Gavin and I literally wrote a uh, like a little like vanguard like. I don't know, diatribe when we, yeah, manifesto of sorts when we uh, first launched it. And we quoted Hunter S. Thompson, who says that objective journalism doesn't exist and to not look for it under any byline of his, you know, with the excuses of like, or with the exception of box scores and stock indexes, it doesn't exist. It's a, it's a meaningless contradiction of terms, right? And our whole idea as a, a, a nebulous was to offset the corporate, uh, you know, propaganda, which all of our mainstream, like, you know, down the middle, uh, you know, media uh, is steeped in. It's not actually down the middle media. It's massively skewed. So the entire existence of BreadTube was to provide a counterbalance, at least in my view, to that, you know, constant framework, right? Like to reframe the issues in a way that's beneficial to the working class people that's, you know, steeped in progressive ideology, right? Um so like, why would that be a bad thing? Why would that be a bad thing now? Where it's like, oh gosh, you're, you know, you're just in bed with the most progressive candidate. Yeah, that's because that's what my fucking politics are, dummy. Like, I don't understand that criticism. Yeah, listen, so it, my perspective is very, very similar. What I would say is the facts are the facts and they have to come first, just like whatever they are, whatever direction they seemingly point in, let the facts come first. And then your interpretation of those facts is your own and you should own that interpretation and speak your mind authentically. And that's like, yeah, to your point, there is no such thing as just like, oh, it's only objective journalism. If it was only quote unquote objective journalism, you would give like a dry retelling of, here's what happened in Cleveland today, that there was an accident on this, this, this. And it's like, okay, but nobody's really gonna watch that. And if they do, they're 78 years old and they're sitting on the couch and they're barely paying attention. So like, Everybody should be more honest about it. Fox News has a perspective. MSNBC has a perspective. Any outlet you can name online has a perspective. The question is, are you playing hide the ball with your perspective or not? And the real ones will tell you exactly where they're coming from and their opinions will line up with it, which leads to, I mean, look, there's plenty of people. This one actually frustrates me probably more than anything else is when people say they are nominally one thing, right? Like I'm a ardent lefty. But then effectively, the impact that your coverage has is the exact opposite. And that's this category that I just recently sort of came up with. So I've been trying to figure out, like, what is going on with certain people who claim, like, I'm a leftist, but I'm literally only going to beat up on Democrats nonstop. It's like, right. you, in your own mind, you might Not think, like, yeah, I'm just, uh, you know, I'm, I'm a leftist, but you're going to attract an entire audience of ardent right-wingers because effectively, yeah. you're being conservative. They don't care... Uh, the the area from which you're attacking Democrats, they just think you're attacking Democrats. So I like that. And and the default assumption is going to be, I guess the Republicans are better because they're only bashing the Democrats. So right. that's the like the misleading nature of it. And uh, you pointed out like nobody does nobody does the inverse of like the oh I'm a I'm a lefty, but the Republicans are right about everything. Nobody does the <laughs> inverse of that. Where it's like, hey, look, I'm a right winger, but man, these left wing Democrats are sure right about everything. Nobody does <laughs> that's that. That's a good way to be poor. <laughs> I know, right? Yeah. Uh, and also, Kyle, I wanted to I wanted to bring up something on that note because you mentioned like, well, if you're only ever shitting on Democrats and you're going to attract a right wing audience, I think that folks like Dor have taken it to the next level. Where they're not just shitting on Democrats, they're shitting on 
like and not, like per, like corporate Democrats, but they're shitting on progressives. They're shitting on socialists. They're sitting on they're shitting on people punching left on people that are far to the left of the Democratic establishment. People like fucking David Sirota. People like Jordan Sheraton. You know, like good faith, serious lefties. Um, you know, whatever you want to think of them, but because of the fact that they're you know don't sign off on this conspiracy theory or they don't have this exact same talking point as you somehow they're a sheep herder somehow they're a shit lib somehow they're a shill for the establishment who's really um, the sheep herder in that scenario who's really the sheep herder right. in that scenario is the question if you have more disagreements with marianne williamson yeah. than you do with tucker carlson or, or donald, donald trump, trump. Yeah. yeah yeah i don't yeah. need to know much more than that exactly um, and i said on the show the other day i was like this is where it starts it starts with just uncharitably attacking progressives punching left constantly that's where it starts and we saw that with door where it ends is what we reacted to on the vanguard the other day with him jerking off trump supporters and gratifying this fantasy notion of him as some sort of an enemy of the donor class and some sort of friend of the working man that is where it ends up you know we called it a couple of years ago and then the other day on the show there was the clip we reacted to it you know Donald Trump, the donor class hates him. He yeah. literally called him less fascist. Here's what's crazy about this. I, I I can't let this go without because it's like the most obvious hypocrisy. Like Jimmy Dore will literally be like, I would never entertain Marianne Williamson. She's a Zionist warmonger. <laughs> then he will literally talk about how Donald Trump is not a fascist. I'm like, did you not live for those four years? Do you not know what him and Benjamin Netanyahu got up? Do you remember his peace settlement? Like, do you remember his proposal for peace? And like, it was like the it was the most fucking fascist piece of writing I think that has been produced by uh, uh, United States, uh, you know, official for the Middle East, particularly in a good long while. I mean, it was I mean, and, and, and think about all the horrors that uh, the Israeli government was able to get away with under the uh, uh, Trump presidency. So it just for him to just kind of pretend that, you know, that's like completely irrelevant or like not up for discussion. But then to take like his like very narrow disagreements with Marianne Williamson and blow them completely out of proportion. It shows you everything that you need to know. He's not serious. He's not at all interested uh, in an actual left-wing challenge in the Democratic primary uh, to Joe Biden. He'd much rather, uh, you know, flagellate his audience uh, with, uh, you know, RFKJ uh, and, you know, Tucker Carlson and talking about how these are the real outsiders, right? And then, you know, at the end of the day, just go back to signaling how, well, Donald Trump is probably the better option, even though you guys know I don't support any mainstream party candidate, you know, just like zoinks. Yeah. And and by the way, not only you don't even have to point to fucking Israel to prove what a fascist Donald Trump was. The dude literally deployed the American military on the streets of this country. And then a few months later, tried to end American democracy. Like, Let, let's, it, go how, it. let's go through it. Let's go through it. Let's go through. He also signed a pro-torture executive order, right? One of the talking points I hear him say all the time is like, they did torture. Talking about Bush, and it's like, yeah. Talking about Obama, it's like, yeah. But Trump signed a pro-torture executive order after we had already decided, hey, this was kind of against the law in a million different ways. Maybe we shouldn't have done that. Trump tried to coup Venezuela. He ripped up the peace agreement that Obama had put into place with Cuba and went right back into the Cold War posturing. Assassinated Qasem Soleimani. Yeah, he, he ripped up the Iran nuclear agreement, which was fucking working, according to the IAEA, verified over a dozen times. He assassinated Qasem Soleimani. He stopped following it. Yeah, he, he bombed Syria. He did a 400% increase in drone strikes. He continued the war in Iraq. He continued the war in Afghanistan, despite all of his fucking fake-ass posturing. So this isn't close. Look, if, you, if people can't even admit, Biden is relatively hawkish. But even he's way less anti-war than Trump. At least Biden actually followed through and pulled out of Afghanistan. At least he actually reduced the drone war. 
But they would never tell you that because, look, again, it's, it's propaganda at this point, which is super embarrassing. Look, let's end on this note. We've been going for a while now, but I do want to get your thoughts on the Republican primary before we leave. So let's uh, let's jump into that. Uh, cool. Yeah, I think it's uh, I think it's basically uh, uh, signed, sealed, delivered. I mean, I know that there's uh, what's it, Tim Scott, um, that they're uh, uh, putting like forty million dollars in ad uh, runs for uh, down in South Carolina uh, as a like a desperate bid to uh, kind of uh, you know shore things up after Ron DeSantis. Uh, basically, his campaign's falling apart. He was never able to uh, get his footing. Uh, you know, his entire base was just a byproduct of Donald Trump's base. It seems, and while uh, you know, for a while, a lot of people were nervous about uh, Ron DeSantis because he's much more obviously competent than uh, Donald Trump for the reasons we discussed earlier in the podcast. I think that because Donald Trump carries so much of a circus, um, you know, it's um, it's honestly, it's just, it's almost over before it even begins. I, I mean, I think that Donald Trump could win the Republican primary from jail at this point. And so I, I, I honestly, I don't think that there's anything that they could do to keep him from getting the nomination. And I do not say that with any like, level of uh like praise or like you know happiness I, I just think that his base is so delusional and so big that it's going to be impossible even with every effort of the you know uh, republican party if they decided to uh to try and you know keep it away from him with some like you know more respectable candidate yeah I, I totally agree on that. And my hot take is that Ron DeSantis is completely fucked. I have never seen a presidential candidate flop harder than Ron DeSantis has, starting with his hilarious Twitter spaces launch, which essentially set <laughs> the tone for his entire campaign. I said on the show the other day, his campaign has gone off like a wet firework. Um, and I am very proud, I will say. I don't like to toot my horn a lot on the show. And you know, I've made some predictions that didn't come true. But one thing I'm proud to say is that I've been calling for a while now, for over a year, that Ron DeSantis is one of the most overrated and overhyped politicians of my entire lifetime, and that he's not actually going to be successful on a national level. Um, I, I just don't think he's charismatic. I don't think he's funny. I think he comes off like a dick. I think he comes off super whiny. Um, and don't get me wrong, Trump also can come off like a dick, and he can also come off as whiny, but he's charismatic about it, and he's funny about it, which is so much more endearing. And he just has the charisma of a celebrity. Um, Ron DeSantis on the other hand, I like I said, I mean, he's flamed out before the primary has even started. There hasn't even been a debate yet. And even if Donald Trump straight up croaked or went to prison, I still think that through the course of the primary, the Republican voters would decide on someone other than Ron DeSantis, whether that's fucking Tim Scott or Chris Christie, I don't know. But both of those guys, um, as vile as they are, I think are far more charismatic than Ron DeSantis. Uh, it seems like he was able to really you know, capture something in Florida. They really like his culture war stuff down there, but the culture war anti-woke bullshit is just not translating to a successful national campaign. Um, and he just doesn't have what it takes to go up against Donald Trump. He, he just simply doesn't. And he can't, he's in a you know tough place because he can't really attack Trump very much because then the Trump base hates him. Um, but then if he doesn't attack Trump, then it's like, why the fuck are you even running against this guy? So I just think it's a miserable failure on DeSantis's part. I think it was a huge blow to his uh, reputation with the GOP base, one that he might never recover from. Honestly, I think if he had just stayed out of the primary and uh, continued being the governor of Florida, I think he would have continued to rise in his celebrity, continued to be kind of a darling of the right wing. I think it was a huge mistake that he entered the primary and challenged Trump because now he's forced to criticize Trump. He's forced to criticize Trump. By running against Trump, you have to at some point vocally criticize Trump. And because of the fact that the Republican base is now quite literally just a cult of personality, 
around Donald Trump, their dear leader. They barely even care about policy anymore. They don't even really talk about building a wall or anything policy related. It's all just about their dear leader, their God King, Donald Trump. And the biggest sin you can commit as a fellow Republican candidate is insulting, criticizing, or turning on the God King, Donald Trump. And that's what Ron DeSantis is doing. And I think uh, his his reputation among the base might never recover. And you can tell that because he's actually recently just pivoted. We did a story on it uh, yesterday. Um, uh, he did that uh, story on uh, on um, fuck. Uh, never mind. Go ahead, Kevin. Oh, uh, so was, uh, he uh, he's uh, recently started defending Trump on the DOD. Sorry. So um, so I was wrong on DeSantis after the midterms. It actually seemed like obvious to me that he was the direction they were going to go. And here, here was my, my reasoning for it was the midterms were defined by Trump getting involved, basically handpicking his candidates, making them run on the issues he wanted them to run on, like the, you know, the election was stolen, the election was stolen, let's keep talking about 2020. Uh, all of Trump's handpicked candidates shit the bed. All of the non-Trump candidates who were Republicans did well and won. And Ron DeSantis ended up winning by a ridiculous, it was like 19 points or something like that in Florida. So, and there was a brief moment after the midterms where he was tied with Trump and in some polls had eclipsed Trump. So I looked at that and I thought, it. I think DeSantis is probably the favorite. And the reason why DeSantis is the favorite is because I thought, naively, that Republicans would start believing at least a little bit that electability matters. That like for a general election, you can't just go with like, oh, I, this is the guy I want. He agrees with me on everything. We need to like actually beat the Democrats. So let's go with somebody who can beat the Democrats. But they didn't do that. I was wrong. The Republicans were, I, I overestimated the, the intelligence of the Republican base because what ended up happening was they're like, oh, I don't care about electability at all. Now I'm just going to double down and triple down and quadruple down supporting Trump, even though he's like the least likely candidate to actually be able to beat any Democrat in the general election. So- you, I was actually going to ask you, but you already answered it, Gavin. I was going to ask you if you think DeSantis is going to lose second place, but you already said, like, you kind of do. Um, I will say this. So I was wrong on DeSantis, but I do think the criticism is a little overstated now by, by some people because people don't remember in 2016 when Trump went after low energy Jeb and when Trump went after little Marco, it was, in, it was like a week or two and their poll numbers had completely imploded to single digits. Whereas with DeSantis, he's been under Trump assault for a very, very long time, and he's still hanging in at about the 20% line. Now, it's, it's a, been a massive collapse, right? Because at his peak, he was like 38%. So he's down to 20. But he's been at 20 for like months and months now. So it seems like maybe that's his floor. Like he's sort of bottoming out there. So I do think he's better than Jeb Bush. I do think he's better than Marco Rubio. But I do t agree with your criticism now, based on the evidence of what I've seen with the Republican base, that it really does look like it would take a minor miracle in order for Trump to go down. Um, in terms of candidates who would surpass DeSantis, I don't know, man. I can't. Vivek Ramaswamy's having a moment right now where he was in like third place in some polls. In certain states, he's in double digits. Uh, so he's having a moment. Chris Christie is actually having a moment in New Hampshire. He was up to 10% in one poll. So in terms of the ones who, in theory, could threaten DeSantis's number two spot, you would say it's Chris Christie or Vivek Ramaswamy. I don't see it happening with Nikki Haley. I don't see it happening with Tim Scott, no matter how much, uh, you know, Fox, Fox News might try to suck him off and make him the next thing. I don't see it happening with my boy Doug Burgum, who I love dearly. <laughs> I don't see it happening with Asa Hutchinson, who barely exists. So I don't know. I think DeSantis is probably going to stay around the same zone where he is. I think Trump is still a favorite. 
Um, and I don't know, with more indictments rolling in and rolling in and rolling in, I still think Trump will probably stay where he is. I don't know if he'll go up more than he has. I think he'll probably hang out where he is in the 50% range. And then, yeah, I, my only uh, area where I slightly disagree with you now is if he actually is behind bars, which I don't even know if the cases are going to go fast enough to, like, will we know or not? You know, like, will we have the answer by then? But if he's actually behind bars, then I do think it's possible for somebody else to win. But outside of that, I don't know, man. It seems because he's undergone he's, a thousand different indictments, a thousand different criminal charges. And in the Republican primary, he gets stronger and stronger. But it still makes him less and less viable in the general. As much as he's beloved by the Republican base, he's hated by the country now. So Republicans are sort of in a pickle. Like a half-dead Joe Biden might easily win re-election. Yeah, I mean, uh, just to pick up from the, the last point that you made, I think that, you know, obviously if Trump does get arrested and is literally behind bars. It, it, it makes it harder for him to win. Uh, but I was just chatting with Gavin really quickly and, I, and, I, and we were both like, look, dude, if, if unless it's the cheeseburgers and Diet Cokes that catch up to this guy and he actually keels over, I think he has a serious chance, a formidable chance of winning the Republican primary uh, from an actual jail cell. And I think that if you look at the diehard uh, members of his base, the people that are still in the MAGA hats, the people that are still going to rallies, the people that are still living for the MAGA movement, those people are, are ride or die for him. And they will see any kind of uh, you know, effort to prosecute him, to put him in jail uh, as as a, as an affront against them, and because he's onto some truth telling and whatnot, and and it'll be really easy for people to go out and make a bunch of content talking about all the crimes that George Bush has done, that Bill Clinton has done, that Barack Obama has done, etc. And no, none of these presidents were uh, you know prosecuted for their crimes, and none of these presidents were put in jail. Why did they put our guy Donald Trump in jail? Right? I just think it will it will be able to you know create even more fervor within that party. Now, do I think that will translate to a general election victory? Absolutely not. I think it will be absolutely a horrendous failure, and I think it will blow up in his face. But as far as how delusional and entrenched the Republican Party base is and in how married they are to Donald Trump, man, I think that I think this guy would probably set the world record for the most primary votes from a jail cell if it ever came to that. Yeah, I totally agree. And honestly, I as I said earlier, I do think that the Republican Party base is really just a cult of personality around Donald Trump. You barely even hear them talking about policies anymore. Like Donald Trump actually did run on some policies in 2016, building the wall being the big, like, you know, trademark policy of his. I don't even really hear people talking about that. Um, and the fact that he didn't really accomplish anything during his four years in office, um, if that hasn't turned you off from him, if you don't care about the fact that he didn't actually do the things that you wanted him to do, then fucking Chris Christie and Ron DeSantis pointing out his flaws on television isn't going to change your mind. Trump's already your guy because, again, you don't really care about policy. You care about Donald Trump. Um, and like I said, no mealy-mouthed corporate Republican is going to change your mind by, you know, giving some wonky argument about, well, he failed to get this done. Apparently, Ann Coulter was the only Republican that actually wanted Trump to do the things he ran on and stop supporting him when he didn't. But everyone else was like, eh, you know, they just blamed it on, oh, well, he surrounded himself with too many establishment actors. They make all these excuses for Trump and why he didn't do the things he promised he was going to do. And now they're, you know, more than happy to give him another four years to do another four years of nothing uh, if it comes to that. But like Zach said, I don't think it probably will. I think that the Republican Party is on a suicide mission right now, and they're going to elect Donald Trump as their nominee and then lose the general election. Unless there's something crazy with the no labels party and Joe Manchin ends up splitting the vote. And I, there's scenarios where Trump could still pull it off. Um, but if it was just Trump versus Biden, uh, then I then I think, you know, Trump would Trump would get slaughtered. 
That's a it's a great point you made about Ann Coulter, like actually kind of believing in these things and turning on Trump when he didn't deliver. And she's like the only one who did that. I, I didn't really like reflect on that until now, but it's true. Like her her main beef is like, you are not actually doing the things you said you would do in 2016. Like, I want a I want the wall, like do the she goddamn wanted wall. That fucking wall. Yeah. So um, my final two thoughts and then I'll uh, turn it over to you guys for for last words here. I, I honestly think. I can't believe there's not already a law about this, but we really do need a law that you can't run the country from behind bars because you literally cannot, like, you literally can't do all the things you have to do from behind fucking bars. You can't do trips overseas. Like, you can't, like, this is crazy. Like, that, there should be a law on that, and there should also be a law mandating that the candidates on both sides have to debate. Biden should have to debate Marianne and RFK. Trump should have to debate DeSantis and all these other weirdos. Like, it's crazy that it's, like, a question as to whether or not we're going to get to see them debate. No, I totally agree with you saying that presidents shouldn't be able to like become or a candidate shouldn't be able to become president if they're behind bars. You can't even fucking vote in this country if you're a felon. So why the fuck can someone who's incarcerated become president? Right. But for the most part, for the most part, I think a lot of states have made it ineligible for felons to vote. So, I mean, how do you square that? How can someone who's incarcerated become president if felons can't even vote for president? That makes no sense to me whatsoever. Um, and yeah, as far as the debate question, totally agree. I think it's insane and completely undemocratic that someone like Joe Biden, who's as unpopular as he is, isn't forced to debate. Now, if it was like a Bill Weld situation, you remember Bill Weld challenged Donald Trump in 2020, much like how Marion Williamson is challenging Joe Biden. But unlike Marion and unlike RFK, Bill Weld never took off. I don't think he ever got higher than like 2% against Donald Trump. And if that was the same case with Marianne, I, I, I honestly wouldn't be clamoring for Joe Biden to debate someone who was challenging him and only at 2%. Like, I would actually agree at that point that it would be a waste of his time and unnecessary. Um, but the fact of the matter is that we got one candidate with like 18 to 20%, another with like 6 to 10%. Um, this is serious stuff. That's way, way clear in the threshold that's usually in place in order to get on the debate stage, which I think is like 3% or something like that, at least for prime. Primaries. John Hickenlooper got on the debate stage, guys. <laughs> Martin O'Malley, John Hickenlooper, Lincoln Chafee. Yeah, like I agree. There can be standards, but it should be like 1% or 2%. Who's that fucker, the governor from Massachusetts that decided to run last minute? He got on the debate stage. Massachusetts governor. Martin O'Malley. Isn't that Martin O'Malley? No, he was like a mayor. Oh, oh, no, Martin O'Malley. Uh, no, uh, Martin O'Malley was a uh, uh, Maryland. Never That's mind. Right. Right. It doesn't matter. That's right. Yeah. Deval Patrick. Deval Patrick. Shout out to Coleman in the control room. He reminded me of that. Bloomberg got Dissolved on stage because he shit guy. out a gazillion dollars. <laughs> yeah, he entered like anyway. last minute and no one cared. <laughs> yeah, nobody cared. Anyway, uh, all right, guys. Awesome conversation. Uh, go ahead and plug, you know, whatever, your Twitter, your YouTube channel and all that fun stuff. Yeah, so we're the Vanguard Podcast. Check us out on YouTube. We go live most days, um, you know, every day, or like right around like 2 o'clock uh, Central Time, although Gavin and I are generally like late or behind. So, you know, hit the... Uh, subscribe button if you want to get a lot of the good stuff from us over there. Um, but yeah, uh, find us on Twitter. I think we're at Vanguard Pod on Twitter. Um, yeah, all that good stuff. Really appreciate you having us on today, Kyle. It was uh, super fun chatting with you. No, thanks for yeah. joining me. I really appreciate it. Absolutely. It was such a great conversation, Kyle. So good to catch up. I was really excited to talk about some of this electoralism, horse race kind of stuff. I know that you love a horse race as much as Zach and I. Uh, and that's one of our favorite things to talk about 
Um, you know, before I ever even got involved in politics because I really cared about progressivism, I always just liked the horse race. Like even when I was a kid, you know, and like the uh, 2008 election was going on, I did support Obama and I did consider myself like more of a Democrat, even though I was in sixth grade. But I just always have loved the horse race stuff. Now, as I've gotten older, I've, you know, come to appreciate and have a lot more uh, respect for the actual policies themselves and why they need to be implemented. That's why I'm a socialist. That's why I'm a progressive. But I do appreciate a good horse race discussion. So very glad to have that with you today, Kyle. Thank you so much for inviting us on. And yeah, you guys can find us at The Vanguard on YouTube. That's where we post most of our stuff, Vanguard underscore pod on Twitter. Um, but yeah, awesome conversation. Check us out there if you want to see more. And we're looking forward to chatting again at some point, Kyle. Awesome. Everybody go check them out. Good show. All right, guys, that was Zach and Gavin of The Vanguard. You could check them out on YouTube. Uh, they definitely occupy a similar space, and it was really fun uh, having a detailed conversation with them. And yeah, that's all I got for you this week. Crystal should be back next week. Everybody do me a big favor if you haven't yet. Um, go to Substack and join up. It's $5 a month. You get the video of every interview and you get it a day early. And for people who don't want to do that, you could always go to Substack and sign up for free and you get the audio version of the podcast usually a day later on Saturdays. Remember, we don't take any corporate money, any advertiser money for this show. It's all funded by you guys and we couldn't do it without you. So I love all y'all and I will talk to you soon. <laughs>